0: Reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look, delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart.
1: Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company,
0: Golden, Colorado.
2: Hey everyone, it's Lindsey Rhodes, and I've got a new podcast, The NFL Road Show
3: What is up, Hardware Knocks listeners? I am Dan Valley coming at you without my fantastic co-host, Adam Frommel. As usual, though, super excited to be joined by not one, but two guests. First, we bring on Adam Spinella. You can follow him on Twitter at Spinella14, S-P-I-N-E-L-L-A. 14. He is a Dickinson College Assistant Men's Basketball coach as well as a contributor to the Celtics blog. Also has a fantastic YouTube channel. You should go check that out. He's breaking down stuff all the time. Just search Adam Spinel, it'll come up. He actually comes on and we're doing a bunch of rookie predictions. We recorded this a couple weeks ago, didn't have a chance to get it out until now because we really wanted to get those team look aheads rolling. So nothing we said I don't think will be updated, but if we're commenting on odd breaking news or anything like that, just you know, look past it. It's still Evergreen Pod, so it's going up now. After we speak with him, we talk to another frequent guest of the pod, Lazarus Jackson. He is... Not only the Dean of Pistons Twitter, as it says in his bio, but he's also the editor at Detroit Bad Boys. He hosts the Detroit Bad Boys podcast over there, and he also hosts the Pistons versus Everybody pod for the Blue Wire Podcast Network. Yet another crossover episode happening here. Follow him on Twitter at Last Chance. That's at L A Z C H A N C E. Before we get started, just our usual reminder to continue rating, reviewing, and subscribing to Hardware Knox on iTunes. If you don't use iTunes, subscribe to us wherever else you get your podcasts. Make sure you're downloading every episode. However, regardless of whether you you use iTunes, head over there, search Hardware Knox, throw us that five-star rating, write reviews. Those are the things that help us a ton. Cannot stress that enough, cannot plead with you enough to continue doing that. Without further delay, though, let's get to some rookie year predictions and to some Detroit Pistons deep dive talk. First and foremost, though, Adam, how are you doing?
1: Uh, Dan, thank you for having me on. I'm doing great. You know, I think like everybody else right now, finding a way to survive and adapt and, and make the most out of these situations. You know, we uh, we tell the guys on the team that we coach here, we got to find a way to turn this into an opportunity. So long as our friends, our family are not, you know, health-wise or, or financially impacted by all this stuff too much, try to find ways to get better at things. And uh You know, glad to see a lot of people have taken that to heart and, you know, finding ways to to just get through it on a day-to-day basis.
3: Yeah, the thing that I found tough is focusing on, from at least my end, something that in the grand scheme of things is so inessential. Like, I think I've done or survived as long as I have in the industry by, like, leaning in to my lack of essentiality, just because at the end of the day, I do spend, you know, probably 60 to 80 hours a week covering a game. But As the coronavirus pandemic has been going on, and then obviously the fallout from it, just the impact everywhere, it makes you feel like, for me personally, when I'm doing this, it makes me feel like even less purposeful with what I'm doing. I still enjoy it, but it's like tough to focus on because... You know the look, the n b a season is starting up again, and people are talking about you know, will they be able to finish all seventy two games like what are the positive test rates gonna look like? They're looking at what's happening with the nFL right now where there's just this onrush of positive cases and postponements and are the, are they leaving enough time um between like these reschedules and the answer is is clearly no, so there's like. You have to focus on that because that's part of your job. And talking about basketball is also fun, but that there's just all this real world, more important stuff going on, and it's also important to keep perspective. Um, it's just something I personally have struggled to grapple with: is the focus on the basketball when there's so m- much more profound things happening around us, profoundly negative in a lot of instances as well.
1: Yeah, and you know, adaptability is the best ability to have right now. Whether it's us who are going through and needing to find ways to fill the rest of our schedule and you know adapt to what life is like in a you know quarantine or socially distanced world and for nba teams and general managers front offices players it's all about adapting to the the frequent changes whether that's on a daily or weekly basis with covid protocols testings positives the way that they have to change things on the fly or with the unique offseason that we just are, are really wrapping up right now from the you know, two week truncated period of raft and free agency and everything getting crammed into a small window. Adaptability really has been the name of the game this year.
3: I we spoke about this quickly before we started this conversation officially about keeping track of who ended up where. And there are like, by the by the season I hope I'm just a little bit more school in it, but there are still instances where I'm forgetting things. And like I mentioned to you, I forgot Trevor Ariza ended up on the Thunder. Um, though in my defense, there I feel like at one point Trevor Ariza probably forgot that he ended up on the Thunder, given how many balls were in the air at some point. So I need to, I need to make sure that I'm on point for that. I can't be shocked when I see like, you know, Jacob Evans suiting up for the Knicks on opening night or something.
1: Yeah, and I feel like the walking meme of Alan from The Hangover with those math numbers just trickling down right in front. of me. <laughs> Like that's just how I feel trying to process. Who's where and all of the different player movement, especially when it comes to Oklahoma City, man. That's just been uh, been a smorgasbord of trades.
3: And I know, like you know, for the rookies specifically, who we're about to really talk about, like this has to be like a I don't even know what the word would be, but they're all of a sudden like they go from the last time a lot, let's say, a lot of these um, kids played basketball was let's say around March or something, and now all of a sudden they're in NBA training camp after just being drafted two weeks ago, and you have to ramp it up like to be ready for an actual regular season no summer league or anything like that so there's like a level of i think this is an extreme way to put it because they obviously weren't going at zero but let's say like you're all of a sudden going from like 30 miles an hour to 120 so that kind of has to be like sort of a huge uh reality check for them like as they're getting prepped for their rookie season where it's all it, it was so far away or they didn't know when it was going to happen and then all of a sudden it's all happening at once
1: and we're going to see you know, two different courses of action that teams take with their rookies. One is to understand that a lot of these guys need time and polish and are definitely not going to be ready after a two-week camp just to get themselves in with no summer league experience. So they're going to keep those guys on the bench and not put them in a rotation until they feel really, really comfortable. Or the other end of the equation, we're going to see teams who say, you know what, we invested in this young man. We need them to figure it out on the fly. And just throw them into the fire and see what happens. So I'm curious, just based on the individual circumstances of each team and each prospect, who gets lumped into which camp? Who's going to have the leash to play through some of their mistakes that we know they're going to make early? And which teams are going to say, eh, let's, let's wait a little bit longer?
3: So, interesting kind of segue there is I want to ask you about how the top five picks unfolded, and normally I, I think you would just assume that most of the top five picks would you know be baptized by fire, where they're just going to be given these huge roles, but you just laid out all those circumstances where things can change. So just to briefly recap the top five, Timberwolves took Edwards at one, Warriors took Wiseman at two, Hornets took Lamelo at three, the Bulls uh, took Patrick Williams at four, which I think shocked pretty much everybody, and then the Cavs took Isaac Okoro at five. The first question I wanted to ask you is— how should the first, if you were doing this draft for each team? How would the first five picks have gone? I'm interested to see if there would be any changes there for you.
1: So I, I hesitate to answer this this question in like the the steadfast terms of how I would do it based on my big board, uh, because I, I think there's value in going along with the consensus somewhat, and this is more so in terms of you know if I'm Charlotte and I have the third pick. I understand that LaMelo Ball is probably going to be the best guy available right there. Mm-hmm. Um, it, just in terms of what other teams are looking for, how he's valued across the league. I would be more inclined to either take him third and then try to flip that for something of, of equal value or trade down and out of that spot if I didn't want LaMelo there. So it's hard to you know blame Charlotte for taking a guy that I don't have even in my top 14 when I understand the you know value that he has around the league and the perception is really what drives him into that spot. So, if I were making this draft, I'd probably go Edwards first to Minnesota. I had him number one, and and Wiseman to Golden State number two. Those two went hand in hand. Uh, Charlotte, you know, for value, I probably would would do the same thing if I were in their shoes and take Lamelo. But I love Kyra Lewis Jr. He ended up going to New Orleans at thirteen. Uh, Big, big, big fan of his and and think that he'd be that kind of next best offensive player, especially in the backcourt, that would be available. Uh, Four for Chicago. I'm a huge Devin Vassell guy. Like I'm not even shy about saying that's my man crush in this year's draft. (laughs) Unbelievably smart help defender. and, And I keep saying the best help defender I've ever scouted at the college level. You add that with... His raw tools—a six-ten wingspan, some upside to create off the bounce, forty percent shooter from three over the last two years at Florida State. I just I, everything about his game screams modern NBA. And then fifth for Cleveland, I go back and forth. Yeah, I think I really like Denny Avia. Um, you know, he ended up going ninth to Washington and and went on a little bit of a slide, which not a lot of folks predicted, but. Uh, he's at Jack of all trades, master of none. And for Cleveland right now, I think that would have been a, a pretty wise pick, not just for fit, but it gives you the versatility to add a really good player. That's not going to hurt you in any way, uh, but gives you the, the freedom, the flexibility to figure out what they're going to do with love Drummond, And then there are two young guys in the backcourt moving forward.
3: The, I, I wasn't. I think in the 24 to 36 hours leading up to the draft, it felt like it became fairly clear that Edwards was going to be the pick. And so you, you also can't say he came out of nowhere because he was in the discussion for the entire year. But it felt like for so long the focus had kind of been on like, will they trade out of it so that someone could take LaMelo Ball or Wiseman? And that Edwards was kind of just assumed like, oh, maybe he'll go two or maybe he'll go three. But then he ends up being the number one pick. And so do you think this was probably more so a matter of Minnesota drafting for fit? when they should have gone for BPA? Or do you think that he, pro- of those three, um, just because there are only three names in the discussion, that he probably has the best chance of like being the, the BPA in that, in that one spot when you're looking at it relative to Lamelo Ball and James Wiseman?
1: Yeah, I thought he was best player available, best prospect available. And to be, to be honest, he cemented that for me and got into the number one spot on my board a little over a year ago. It was around Thanksgiving time at the Maui Invitational. He scored over 30 points in the second half against Michigan state and took Georgia from down more than 25 to come back and and make it a one possession game late in the end. And I knew at that point, you know, this is a class that is incredibly weak on alpha scorers, especially in the backcourt Mm -hmm. Uh, and just his ability to flash that potential. You know, there are going to be inconsistencies and frustrations with him, but you got to remember this guy's a year younger for his class than, than everybody else. He should have just finished up his senior year in high school. So I have a lot more understanding and patience with some of the mental mistakes, the shot selection, the lack of intensity on defense, and believe that those are much more correctable than some of the people who had him lower than first overall on their board would. Because if those concerns are, are are fixed or at least brought up to league average, then there's no question he's number one.
3: The next question I had for you is it pertains to those three. So who has the bigger impact just as a rookie when you're looking at Edwards, Wiseman, and LaMelo?
1: They all, you know, they all have the potential to have it. Um, I think Edwards and Lamelo are definitely going to be two of those guys that play through mistakes, receive minutes early on in their career, and are expected to be on the floor at the end of games for their team. So, typically, those two are the ones that you look at as saying, "We know they're going to have an impact as a rookie." Like Wiseman's an interesting one, just with the circumstance in Golden right. State. Um, you'd think that they would default to some of the veteran guys a little earlier on or in late-game situations if they have them. But I don't know. I I probably would say LaMelo has the bigger impact on his team uh, just because with the, the recent moves that have been made by Charlotte and how they can surround him with shooting at pretty much every other backcourt position, he should have the ball in his hands a decent amount. So I, I think that Lamelo is probably the one of, of those three that gets the longest leash, the most opportunity to prove what he can do right away. Uh, but impact doesn't necessarily mean you know positive impact, right? So I think that uh, Lamelo is going to have as many bad nights as he does good ones, but uh, he, he's definitely going to have the opportunity to play through it.
3: So you do think that he'll have because I'm looking at this, and normally I feel like it's easier to discern what type of roles the you know certainly the top three picks will have, but you look at. Minnesota and Golden State specifically. And, like, those are two teams. We know Golden State fancies itself more than just a playoff hopeful. Well, they probably want to contend. And then Minnesota, like, you don't make that D'Angelo Russell trade unless you're trying to make the playoffs this season. And so it feels like those two could actually end up having, like, a shorter road to work with. And then in Charlotte, I don't say this just because they signed Gordon Hayward, but I'm just curious because you do make that investment. You have Devontae Graham already, and I am interested to see whether they actually give him, like, uh you know, really, the leeway to plumb the depths of his game for better and worse.
1: We can talk in, in many different ways about the Gordon Hayward signing, how much money he got, whether it's the right fit and the move for them. Short term, just thinking about how it helps Lamelo, it's it's a really really good fit for someone who kind of mentors in a little bit of that facilitating wing type of way and gives him another late clock option that can create his own shot reliably in in ways that, you know, Graham just chucks up threes and Rozier, you never know what you're going to get. So uh, I understand why Hayward's presence really does help LaMelo in the short term. Um, But yeah, it's, you know, I'll be the first one to admit I've not been that high on LaMelo. I don't see him becoming an efficient guy in the role that he's in. He may put up gaudy numbers, but it's more so due to volume and kind of empty calories as opposed to, really
2: quarterbacking a winning team. 2020 has already reshaped how we work, and it's almost over. Businesses across the globe are challenged to be their most efficient, which means every hire is critical. Well, Indeed is here to help. Right now, Indeed is offering our listeners a free $75 credit to boost your job post, which means more quality candidates will see it, and fast. Try Indeed out with a free $75 credit at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. This is their best offer available anywhere. Go right now to Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Offer is valid through December 31st. Terms and conditions apply.
3: The next up I have for you is, who did you have as the biggest reach in the draft?
1: It's, it's funny. So I looked at in kind of the playback of of the draft here, the top 24 picks all seemed to be guys that I looked at and I said, yeah, this is about the range where these guys should go or where consensus has them pegged right now. And once we got out of that it started to seem like you know preference set in for fit or teams that fancied themselves and, and really got their their eyes set on on one target. And the biggest reach for me came with Boston at 26 taking Peyton Pritchard. Part of that, as we see now with the news on Kemba Walker and and his knee being rested, I think they knew they needed a point guard and somebody that was going to be a long-term facilitator, uh, whether it's someone that they hand the reins to once Kemba's career dwindles down, or if it's just somebody that's able to come in and play 12 to 15 minutes a night right now on a playoff team. and. Either way you look at it, I thought there were better guards on the board when uh, when Boston was on the clock at 26 for those spots. If you're looking for the long-term play, I think Tyrell Terry would have been awesome there. He's a floor spacer that would give Tatum and Brown so much room to operate. And Yes, he still needs a little bit more work. He's, he's not quite ready to log minutes, but if they wanted to take the long-term patient approach, he had the highest upside of all the, guard, the guards available. If you're looking for instant impact, I had both Malachi Flynn and Trey Jones ahead of them. Uh, Flynn ended up going a little bit later to Toronto. I just think he's more well-rounded, uh, much better, stronger individual defender, and is a couple years younger than Pritchard. As well, you know, Jones for me, I just I love his on-ball defense. That's that's an area that, as a coach, I fall in love with guys who are just disruptors.
2: Mm-hmm. And I
1: thought he would have been a really, really capable backup point guard from day one. So. For me, it's it's a reach, not because you know, he's not necessarily a end-of-the-first-round talent, but because I just thought there were convincingly three other guys on the board that would have been better than him.
3: I'm a little bit surprised you didn't go with Patrick Williams at four, because if I'm not mistaken, you had him outside the top 25 on your big board, right?
1: I, I did, but I also understand why he goes there. There's so much tantalizing upside with what he could become. My pessimism on him was that if he doesn't become that, there's very little way that he's going to be an impactful NBA player. I just, you know, the the thing I keep coming back to with him is be good at what you do frequently, and he's not a very good catch-and-shoot threat. He's, you know, best hitting jumpers in the mid-range off the pull-up, and uh, he's a decent passer. But if if you're not a transcendent scorer and somebody who gets to the rim at a high rate or can create your own shot reliably you don't get asked to do that frequently so th- i get the upside pick with patrick williams at four um wouldn't have been my selection but i can rationalize it in a way that i can't with pritchard based on you know what other guards were on board
3: i wasn't as a someone who you know is like on the patrick williams bandwagon uh you i this i I'm not happy with the fit for him because it does seem like Chicago is going to end up playing him a lot at the three, which I don't know that he has like the the burst to do like defensively. And like, I, I think you could even say offensively as well, but definitely defensively uh, where I think you might've like, I, I don't know. I would have rather seen him gone somewhere where I know he's going to get like have a monopoly of his minutes come at the four. But I, again, as we had talked about on the side, like I understand the upside play for there. I just don't know if the bulls, were the team to make it unless they plan on shaking up their their front court personnel at the moment.
1: Well, and now would be an opportunity Dan if I could just to like I get asked all the time, you know, why are you rooting against this guy? Why are you why are you saying all these things about he's not worth it at number 4? Like the, the whole draft analysis part of this is trying to analyze which bets individually we would and would not make. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean that I'm rooting against this kid. To I I'd love to see Patrick Williams go out there and prove everybody wrong and and be the best player overall in this class. That would that would be awesome. Uh, but you know, you're asking individuals what bets they feel comfortable making and which ones they don't. And for me that's just one at least that early in the draft which with so much room between where he is right now as a ball of clay and how you would theoretically use him um i just i wasn't comfortable making that pick anywhere near the the top of the draft
3: it's funny how people view it that way where it's like criticism they equate to like an actual it's not even like that can be a belief but you're not actually pulling to be right in those situations necessarily like you're giving an opinion people conflate it with oh you hate them so um spins doesn't hate anyone at least not who's entered the nba draft at least not this nba draft uh who was the biggest steal of the draft and i put outside the top 10 on this for you uh just because i don't know just to make it a little bit more interesting like kind of late late lottery or just totally outside the lottery
1: rj hampton uh and you went totally outside the lottery <laughs> i did 24th to denver a huge rj hampton guy and some of this comes down to what i mentioned earlier with with Anthony Edwards, you know, he's a year younger. He reclassed to uh, leave high school earlier and go to New Zealand and play with the New Zealand breakers. So his story is as much of a reason why I'm, I'm high on him figuring it out as the actual skills that he's shown. You know He was a point guard all through high school, through AAU when he was on the USA basketball select squads as a youngster. He played with the ball in his hands 95% of the time he was on the floor. He signed with a team in in Australia, or technically New Zealand, that was in playoff contention and had really good veteran guard play. A couple guys that were in their 20s and 30s, and they were competing for a playoff opportunity. So Hampton did not have the leash to play through mistakes on ball or learn all of the requirements needed for a professional level point guard on the fly Mm -hmm. and moved him almost like to a two or a three on the wing. And imagine being somebody who has the ball in your hands 95% of the time and then moves into a almost completely inverse role where you're you're off ball so much. And uh, there, of course, Hampton's numbers aren't going to pop. Of course, what he's able to show this year isn't that impressive. But I went back and, and watched uh, the Breakers did a scrimmage against the Oklahoma City Thunder last October when Hampton should have been sitting in biology class or statistics. <laughs> he's out there guarding Chris Paul and playing against him, and, and he showed very well. He made some really nice passes out of the pick and roll. He has a second gear athletically that you know only guys like Russell Westbrook and Zach Levine really have in this league. There's a lot to like with him upside-wise. He's young. He's going to take a little bit of time, but I really believe that if you put him in, in spread pick and rolls, he's going to make a lot of positive plays.
3: And correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like for offensively, like, two of the biggest knocks on him is one there's the shooting and then uh the inconsistent pressure he puts on the rim and being in denver again we don't know how much time he's gonna get probably not much as a rookie but long term looking at how they play like he might be putting pressure on the rim organically if he's working off the ball just with the way that they get guys moving towards the rim and jokic is able to find them so one do you agree with that but then two like how concerned are you about like the numbers on his jumper being not so pretty
1: so Denver's a great fit for him and he's exactly the type of guy that Denver should take. Like we've seen them just go big game hunting over the last few years. They took Michael Porter Jr. and it seems to be working out. They took Bull Bol and that one seems to be working out fairly well for where he was drafted. They are they're hitting on all of their high upside swings. And you mentioned the the system with Jokic stretching, stretching defenses out. It's going to give him more opportunities to slash and cut to the rim. I think Monte Morris is going to be playing himself into a bigger contract next summer. And Denver might be wise to let him walk. I can see Hampton filling in admirably in that kind of backup handler, creating point guard type of role. Um, the shooting worries for me, you know, he's been working with Mike Miller, the um uh, you know, elite shooter that stood in the corner and carried the Miami heats three point shooting percentage for years. (laughs) And that's, that's helped Hampton quite a bit. I don't know. I'm not in the room there or in the gym. It's hard for me to speculate as to how much of a tangible gain that's going to be, but it seems like the kid wants to work. And, you know, if you surround hardworking people with the right mentors, the right shooting coaches, those who are going to be able to improve them, you're willing to take those gambles that those guys are, are going to continue to figure it out. So it, does it worry me a little bit? Uh, but I also can't think of many people who I'd bet on figuring it out over RJ.
3: I was going to ask you if you considered another player for this spot, but you actually mentioned this player in the following question that I had asked you. So which team overall had the the best draft to you? And this was, you know... Post to you while looking at the macro, like it could have been, you know, trades, uh, acquiring established NBA players, but but also obviously the the picks that they were able to use and the prospects they took with them.
1: Yeah. It you know, there's hybrids of all of those, whether it's trade or draft or trade and draft. Like Portland had an awesome night getting Robert Covington that that whole week. Like that was that was awesome for them because he's the perfect fit. But to me the the two winners of the draft are San Antonio and, and Philadelphia. Uh, San Antonio got uh, the prospect who was number three on my board in Devin Vassell. They got him at 11, and a top 20 guy in Trey Jones at 41. Two really, really feisty defenders on ball and off ball. Really high IQ competitors, guys who went at it with each other twice in the ACC this year, and and two guys that are pretty good shooters. You know, Vassell, as we mentioned, above 40 percent from three two years in college. The knock on Trey Jones. and this is the one game that will stick in my head forever and ever. He was guarded by Taco Fall in the NCAA tournament <laughs> when Duke played UCF. And UCF almost pulled off the upset because Jones couldn't shoot. He went back. He worked in the gym. He got up to 36% from three this year and 40% on catch and shoots. You put him with Chip England, the famed shooting coach in San Antonio. He's only going to get better. Like That is such a dream scenario for for him that uh, these are just two unbelievable values that not just fit their culture, but might have been best player available when they were on the clock each
0: time.
3: I was, if, well, I shouldn't say knowing that I only you know dig into the draft so late, it surprised me personally that Bissell didn't go a little bit earlier because you were the one that, you know, he was one of the prospects that I watched earlier because you turned me on to him in one of our side conversations. And it, like, yeah, you can mention 3 and D with him, but, like, when you watch him, it feels like he might have the ball skills necessary to do a lot more on the offensive end and i just would have thought when you look at the archetype like oh three and d but he has the potential to do more on offense with the ball i I thought for sure that he was going to go inside the top 10 and so it ended up to me being a great pick for san antonio which quietly has gone from like never rostering wings to now having a ton of them so good for them i guess but i i really didn't think he was gonna make it to number 11
1: and it's the perfect scenario for him because if there's one team, one player development staff that you trust to, you know, milk the most out of him as a creator off the bounce and be more than just a three and D wing, like you mentioned, it's got to be the Spurs, right?
3: Right. Uh I was the thing that surprised me most about him, by the way, is I thought once he fell to ten that he was just a shoe in to go to Phoenix. Like I thought that that just made so much sense. Like I know they have. Bridges there and then they obviously went on they have Cam Johnson they went on to sign um Jay Crowder but and then you also had Darius Sarge but like just sort of someone who could plug and play and maybe make an impact on the team next season uh I was not expecting the the Jalen Smith pick there like that that was the one that floored me I just thought that Devin Vassell was such a perfect fit in Phoenix I think he's a good fit in San Antonio but that was like the spot where you looked at it where I looked at it personally was like oh I, I can't believe he fell past Phoenix yeah it was
1: uh I think he and Bridges would have been a dynamic wing backcourt defensive duo there. Uh, but, you know, it, I got to mention Philadelphia, too. And I just wrote a really long article and did a, the longest film breakdown of my career. I did a 42-minute video on oh, the geez. yeah the Doc Rivers offense for using shooters off screens, just looking at how he's used J.J. Redick or Landry Shamit Ray Allen during his time in Boston and what that's going to do with Seth Curry. In, in philadelphia I, I think that the they won draft night by getting tyrese Maxey a really good value at 21 where they got him isaiah joe a really good pickup in the second round and a guy who i had a lottery grade to just because i think he's going to be one of the best catch and shoot uh, prospects in this draft class if not the best shooter available and you combine you know doc river's arrival and the added spacing that you get with seth curry Coming into the fold next to Embiid and Simmons, it just completely transformed their offense. It, they got rid of Al Horford too, which is a huge win. So, like Philly had a, an awesome string of days there around the draft.
3: Seth Curry uh, should be molten there. What's the one pick to you that's not getting just enough attention, and it could be for better or for worse? I
1: I mentioned this at the very top. I had Kyra Lewis Jr. as a top five uh, grade on my draft and. He ended up going to New Orleans in a situation where they got rid of Drew Holiday. And, you know, Lonzo Ball is there, but I don't know if my trust in him as a primary facilitator is dwindling. Lewis is a very good catch and shoot prospect. You know, everyone talks about speed, speed, speed with him because it's glaring. It's the first thing that jumps out at you how unbelievably fast he is, especially in the full court. But, there's a guy who shot forty percent on catch and shoots last year. And you're putting him at the guard spot next to Zion Williamson and Brandon Ingram, two really good kind of isolation one-on-one guys on the wings. Like that in itself is a really good fit. You've cleared a path to minutes for him by getting rid of Drew Holiday and not having to take back a ton of, you know, guard depth. Like I know Eric Bledsoe is is still gonna be there and probably end up starting, but It's a lot easier to justify playing Lewis some minutes early on in his career over a guy like Bledsoe than it is over Holiday. So I'm really fascinated to see the open floor speed that he brings next to Zion, the half-court shooting, and he's a really underrated pick-and-roll playmaker. So as he continues to develop his game and Stan Van Gundy is a wizard at coaching point guards in the pick-and-roll, I think it's just an unbelievable fit of player and organization.
3: I think when you look at the type of role he had played at Alabama, you wouldn't – at least I wouldn't have expected this, but over 52% of his threes came off assists. And so does that make like a cleaner pathway to him being a fit alongside another ball-dominant guard type, whether that's Lonzo or Eric Bledsoe, because he's going to have to play in tandem with at least one of them.
1: And I'm a big believer in you know the people who – know you but don't have a stake in you um it, when they advocate on your behalf it says a lot about you and avery johnson recruited him to go to alabama was his coach for his first year and then got fired and he went on national television was a cbs draft analyst this year and was saying that kyra lewis should have been a top seven or eight draft pick and to me you know he doesn't have a, a dog in the fight anymore it doesn't do avery any good to see kyra get ranked that high anymore um and to, to see him go out there and, and really push for him, really validate a lot of what I was seeing in, in Kyra, just as a, a a really really dynamic playmaker, not just in the full court but in the half court.
3: The wait is finally over. Football is back. You might not be at a game this year, but you can still be in on the action at Bet Online. Bet Online is going the extra mile to make sure you can get in on every possible chance to win this season, from game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props. BetOnline gives you more options to wager on than anywhere else. You can get in on their season opening bonuses today and start off wagering on wins, division odds, and championship futures all day, every day. Head to BetOnline today and take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. Don't forget to use promo code BLUEWIRE, all one word, at BetOnline.ag. That's Blue Wire, all one word. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. Prodding you towards some predictions for their rookie season, who leads this rookie class in points per game next year?
1: I'm going to go with Edwards. Uh, I just think he's a naturally gifted scorer, and the five-out spacing in Minnesota gives him very little excuse to get to the rim a ton. So I'm, uh, I'm pretty pretty high on him, though. Obi Toppin did sneak into the, the frame of mind. Oh, really? That's interesting. Yeah, just... Just with his polish and being ready, a lot of the direct, the top picks this year are a little bit younger. Uh, Obi was really the, the oldest one around there, who, at least of those who were scores first. So uh, I thought about it, but uh, Edwards seems like the right right guy.
3: The wild card for him too would be how much will Tibbs play him if Julius Randle is still there? Uh, like an opportunity could end up being an issue. Did you think about LaMelo Ball at all?
1: You know, and... I think ball probably leads and assists. There you go. Uh, Spoiler. That's the next category. (laughs) But I I just, I had a really difficult time in thinking that he's going to score it well enough. Um, You know, with Edwards, he's, he has the potential to be an elite finisher right now, as long as he wants to get to the rim. And as we mentioned, Minnesota's five out spacing with Carl Anthony towns living and just setting up camp at the top of the key. Like that's going to give Edwards all the, the lanes he needs to get to the basket. So I feel more comfortable with him than I do with LaMelo uh, just as a very, you know, average or below average finisher right now.
3: Okay. So you have Edwards for points per game, assists per game. You have LaMelo, which I feel like is kind of the obvious one, but you also have someone else. If we're looking at their career, I saw you put in the notes here.
1: I did. Yeah. You know, Kyra, I think we mentioned the short term blockade of minutes there with Bledsoe and Lonzo and, you know, even Josh Hart getting minutes as a, a backup combo. Like Lewis may not get the most opportunity right out of the gates, but if you're asking me who retires from this draft class with the most assists per game or, um, you know, most assists total, I'm probably going to go with Kyra. Man, you're all in on Kyra. I am. I it, You know, there are only four guys that I look at in this draft class that I said I, I would want them in the lottery uh, or the top 10 of any other draft, and it's Edwards, Wiseman, Kyra and Vassell.
3: Rebounds per game, leader, for rookies next season.
1: I'm going with Toppin here, and this is a, a really strange kind of dark horse pick for me. Like, I thought of Wiseman, but I'm not sure how much he's going to play. I thought of Okongwu, but I'm not sure how much he's going to play in the logjam that is the Atlanta Hawks front court right now. Uh, Toppin, I think, has the clearest path to minutes. And beyond that, I'm not really comfortable with any other big men really carving themselves out uh, a role right away. So it's more so, I guess, just opportunity that leads to it. Like even LaMelo could sneak in and lead this category. Just Ooh. you know, guys who get minutes are really the only ones you can count on to, to lead in these categories. And, you know, Toppin being a little bit older might be m- – a half step ahead of some of these guys to earn minutes right out of the gate. So I'm going to
3: default to him here. What did you think of the top and pick for the Knicks, uh, particularly given with some of the players that were left on the board at that number, were they the eight spot?
1: You know, shout out to my guy, Leon Rose, Dickinson college graduate. Um, I think it was a, a solid pick here because even though I'm not incredibly high on top and ceiling, He stabilizes their front court a little bit in an area that's been just a smorgasbord of veterans over the last few years. Like they needed to get a little bit younger at the four and provide some shooting at his floor, so to speak. He's a, an impactful offensive player that can space the floor, finish on the inside, put some, put home some monster dunks and lobs. Like you can play him in a lot of different ways offensively, which He's not going to be your number one option, but for the Knicks, you know, I don't think that they needed to reach on somebody at number eight to try to be a number one option. There just wasn't that guy in this draft class when they were on the clock. So uh, I'm I'm fine with it. I think it was a good pick.
3: I I get it because like they desperately need like competent shooting around you know their bigs with you know they end up signing Noel, but you have Mitchell Robinson and RJ Barrett is not. Uh, you know, defenses aren't going to respect his jumper at the moment. And then you do have questionable shooters elsewhere. So having someone who comes in with like that floor spacing polish is big. I feel like I still would have rather have them gone with a bigger swing, like Tyrese Halliburton there, or uh, Devin Vassell would have obviously been okay by me as well. Yeah. Like if we're,
1: you know, using draft boards and everything like that, like I had Jalen Smith ranked ahead of OB top and I had Devin Vassell and Kyra Lewis's top four guys in this draft. And they were both on the board, like if you're asking me who I would have taken, yeah, there are other guys on the, on you know on my my, my list, but I, I don't think Toppin was a bad pick by any means. Just because, like you're mentioning, the need for shooting and a little bit of functionality right away was really important. Who's your steals per game leader prediction for the rookies? Got to be Vassell for me, um, and it, he does face a little bit of a, a blockade to minutes there. Mm-hmm. Uh, where you know I did think about Halliburton a little bit in Sacramento, but. There aren't a ton of guys that uh, that I just am so confident in defensively making the transition, and that's one area where with Fasell I, I am uh, I'm pretty confident there. Blocks per game. I'm copping out on this one and giving it a tie with Wiseman and the Kongwu. Of whoever gets more minutes is going to lead in, in blocks per game. I know that sounds like a cop out answer here. Uh, but quite frankly, it's it's splitting hairs with two circumstances where, you know, maybe their path to minutes is blocked. Maybe it's not.
3: And I guess if you had a pick between which two, like of the two, who gets more minutes, I think, or at least me personally, my pick might be a Wu. Just it feels like Golden State has a greater need, but you do have Kavon Looney. There's Chris there. If they ever want to go to Draymond at the five, and then in Atlanta, you don't necessarily know how healthy Capella is, and then. There's a chance that they end up trading John Collins, or we don't know. It doesn't seem that they like love the idea of playing him at the five anyway, given that you trade for Capella and then you draft Okongwu. So I feel like it'd be Okongwu that ends up playing more minutes per game, but I don't feel confident in that at all. Yeah, I because Atlanta at least has like a you look at them and be like, oh okay, he Click Capella is clearly the starting center there, where the Warriors don't have that to the extent that James Wiseman could just be penciled in for twenty-five minutes a game, technically.
1: Definitely. Definitely. So I'm curious to see how this all shakes out. Like we could get to a point where the Warriors are, you know, maybe more of a six, seven, eight seed in the Western conference without clay. And if that's the case, maybe they open up Wiseman a little bit more. Like if there's trade and movement in Atlanta, definitely a Kongwu was drafted with the idea that he's going to be a focal point at some point. Um, it's, it's, yeah, that, that was a real toss
3: up for me. Uh, your pick here was interesting. Three pointers made three pointers made. I'm going Cole Anthony. So you just think he's going to have the green light.
1: I do a little bit. You know, that's a, a team that's starving for shooting. I think they need a a backup point guard. Uh, DJ Augustine is gone and Anthony has to come in here and, and play a lot of those minutes as a replacement. So he is a scorer at heart. That's what he does. And I love Steve Clifford. He's one of my man crushes when it comes to NBA head coaches. He puts every single player on the court in a position to succeed. And Anthony has the ability to play next to Markel Fultz, to play behind him, to run the second team offense and be that, you know, bench scorer or come in and just kind of space the floor uh, around some of their other guys. So I think he's going to get some early run in there and, he's going to surprise a lot of people with how ready he is to at least knock down some some shots from distance.
3: And the final um like official category, advanced metrics darling and you obviously could open this to whatever advanced metrics you like. If you like Vorp, if you want, you know, total points added, there's PIPM, RPM, who is going to be the advanced metrics darling during their rookie season. So the one common link that I've found in a lot of
1: these analytical models is they really value possession, guys who don't turn the ball over in a lot of things that they do. You obviously have to be efficient finishing, whether it's scoring or or you know having assists, be a solid and competent defensive player. But if you don't turn the ball over or are responsible for ending possessions in the negative, uh, you you have a pretty good chance at at being an advanced metrics darling. So The trendy pick in that category is always going to be Tyrese Halliburton because he had a really impressive assist to turnover ratio in college. But I don't think he's an efficient enough scorer to really carry that mantle. If I had to pick one guy, it's going to be Sadiq Bey with the uh, Detroit Pistons now. A Villanova man always has the key to my heart because they play such fundamentally well-sound basketball. Like, they make good decisions when they get in the lane. They aren't sped up and, and forced to play at any pace other than their own. Bay is a prolific catch and shoot guy. He was over forty-five percent from three last year. He was a point guard in high school. He's got a 6'10 wingspan, so he sees over the top of defenses. And he's a good, sturdy defender. I don't think that his uh you know, that's a part that should go overlooked in any of these analytical models right now is when your team is better by you being on the floor because of what you give defensively and you knock down shots without turning it over at the other end. It's, it's hard to overlook that. Uh, I had Bay as a, as I think number 10 or number 11 on my overall big board this year, just because in a class without a ton of star power, he's a really, really, really sturdy option. And, you know, Detroit, I'm still scratching my head with what they're doing there. But if I'm (laughs) looking at one guy who at least is going to come in and, you know, the numbers will pop per minute. I think Sadiq Bey is that guy.
3: Uh I, I it's tough for me to imagine any advanced metrics loving anyone on Detroit at the moment, but that reasoning right. all makes sense. I like the Halliburton pick. There's there feels like there's an understated path to him playing like a semi huge role in Sacramento. They obviously already let Bogdanovich go. Who knows what happens with Buddy Healed. Like they don't really have you know, if you wanna try him out as a more of a backup point guard, like Corey Joseph isn't the guy, but they also just don't have, like, they're one and two. It's De'Aaron Fox and Buddy Heald, and then everything behind those two guys in the backcourt is essentially open. Corey Joseph obviously factors into that, but, you know, you're not going to— I wouldn't say at this moment that it's a guarantee that Corey Joseph has a much better impact on the Kings than— Tyrese Halliburton. So it feels like I liked the pick. Um, I didn't think he was going to get to number 12, but they're also, you know, post Bogdanovich, it feels like there's a chance for him to actually have like a real opportunity immediately in Sacramento. And part of that might be toward the logic and letting Bogdanovich go where, you know, I think uh, the consensus would be, well, you should have resigned him and figure out a way to move him later. But it does at least show that the Kings are thinking about a longer, larger game, in which case playing Halliburton a bunch makes that much more sense.
1: Definitely. You know, I think the blessing for Halliburton was finding his way to Sacramento because Heald and Fox are the the right kind of, you know, Batman and Robin for him to come in and, and be the third cog in that wheel too. Uh, Luke Walton, you know, he's tailored his offense a little bit more to De'Aaron Fox and picking rolls and playing through him, but it's a motion-based approach where he has Buddy Heald zipping around screens. He wants to move the ball side to side, get it inside to the post just to create and facilitate out of the the low post, not even to score down there. And a motion-based offense, I think, goes really, really well with Halliburton's skill set as an extremely high IQ player, somebody that's not a great creator for his own shot. And I I think he's going to thrive in Sacramento.
3: This question I didn't have on the list, but it does feel like in most draft classes, there's at least one rookie that ends up being a top 100 like current player. In the entire league, uh, obviously, you have John Morant and Zion last year. There was Luka Doncic, Jaron Jackson Jr. in 2018. Um, DeAndre, uh, Trey Young might have been in there as well. Uh, you go back to 2017, uh, Jason Tatum was certainly there. 2016, Ben Simmons didn't actually play, so I'm trying to remember Jalen Brown wasn't at that level, so maybe that's like the last example. I'm trying to think of who else was in that draft class. Is there anyone in this? draft class that you could see establishing themselves with that type of immediate value. Where again we're not talking relative to rookies, but the rest of the league.
1: No. Yeah, no, there's there's nobody that comes to mind. And, you know, when I went through my final big board and kind of explanations or rankings, I, I broke it down by saying Edwards, Wiseman, Lewis and Vassell, the top four guys on my board, were all in what would ordinarily be tier two in any other year. So they don't really scratch the surface of having that clear superstar potential, and in order for you to make that leap from college to the pros, or you know, Europe to the pros, whenever you get to the NBA, it's you have to have that superstar potential, and I just don't see it right now. Like Edwards is the closest thing we have, but he's not going to have that opportunity. He's going to be playing third fiddle to Russell and to Towns from day one.
3: Yeah, I think I agree with you, but your opinion matters more than mine on that subject, so I'm actually glad we're in lock lockstep. Which player from this draft do you think will have the best career when all is said and done?
1: I think it is Edwards. You know, I keep going back to the fact that he's young for the position that he's in right now. The natural skill and talent that he has... It, it's just it's so hard to to bet against and you look back at the andrew wiggins draft and i know wolves fans are going to be pissed for the comparison but like wiggins is averaging what 23 and 6 and 4 for his career like yeah there's a little bit of empty stats and 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 all that stuff to it but wiggins is not a bad player by any means and that's where it comes down to with edwards in a weaker draft class like I'd rather hang my head on somebody who I know has a transcendent ceiling and even if they don't hit their ceiling it's still going to be you know 20ish points a game and and some flashes of brilliance elsewhere. The one comparison that I keep going back to with Edwards like I hate when people say Victor Oladipo or Dwayne Wade or these other Tom Crean coached guys like those are kind of lazy comparisons to me. I see a, a bigger more physical Gilbert Arenas. Ooh. Where yeah, he's going to shoot you out of some games um, and not be the most efficient guy. He's going to chuck from three when you want him to get to the rim a little bit more. But man, can he go out there and get you 30 in a playoff game? No doubt about it.
3: Do you think there's like a... I, the one that sprang to mind here, I think a lot of people might pick Lamelo Ball here. Uh, and you obviously differ from them, but I do think you've at least recognized the upside for him. Does a Tyrese Halliburton work himself into this conversation at all?
1: You know, it's... I think somebody's going to leapfrog Halliburton, where he's almost the opposite of a Lamelo baller and you know a boomer bust type of guy. Like Halliburton, he's not going to be a bad pro, um, but I think there's very low probability that he ends up being an all-star guy. Okay. So he's he's the safer road traveled out of all these guys, and I think for him to be the best player in this draft class, we would need to see a ton of collapses from guys like Edwards, LaMelo, Wiseman, uh, you know, Denny Avia, Patrick Williams not working out. Like there are a lot of guys that were picked ahead of him that just have a lot higher upside.
3: This is a loaded question given how bad rookies tend to be on defense, but who would be your pick for defensive rookie of the year?
1: So. Yeah, very few rookies end up making like a positive impact on, on defense or, or on winning uh, in general. So it is kind of a, a fool's errand of a question, if you will. But if you're going to roll with somebody, it's got to be you know the most well-polished and at least ready for the rigors of the NBA game. So I think Vassell, as you know, my man crush there, um <laughs> He's, he's hard for me to bet against just because he's such an impactful on-ball and off-ball defender. It's the help defense that is going to earn him a little bit longer of a leash to play minutes right away. And then kongwu is an incredibly solid and versatile uh, defensive stopper at the five. You know He can anchor a zone. He can play drop coverage. He can switch. He can hard hedge and move his feet really well on the perimeter. He's bothered bigs away from the basket. The flashes of being able to exist in every single type of way and be a communicative anchor down low, uh, Okongwu would be kind of 1B in that discussion, if you
3: will. Uh, Vassell's interesting just because I feel like the spurt, maybe it'll change this year, but they just tend to not play their rookies too many minutes. Like Keldon Johnson, 17.7 minutes last year, but only 17 games. Uh, They didn't play Derek White too much when he was a rookie. They didn't play Lonnie Walker too much when when he was a rookie. So I'll be interested to see how much he actually plays in San Antonio this season.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's a fair point there. Um, and maybe something I overlooked in thinking of my answers a little bit. I also wouldn't be surprised if the Spurs find themselves out of playoff contention and just try to move DeRozan, move Aldridge, mm-hmm. and embrace the youth movement for the second half of the season, where, you know, Vassell ends up getting those minutes for the final six weeks of the season.
3: The final question right now. And you're free to change this as the, well, I guess we only have a couple weeks until the season. So no, you have to lock it in now. Who would be your rookie of the year pick?
1: Uh, rookie of the year pick for me is, you know, I keep defaulting back to opportunity guys who I know are going to get minutes on the floor guys who are going to have the leash to play through mistakes. And as, as, as much as we've talked about the defensive struggles that rookies have, you got to be able to score it, or at least, you know, put up some offensive numbers that would merit the position. So, I'm going to go with Anthony Edwards in Minnesota. I feel really confident that he's going to start from day one. I feel confident that he's going to be the third option in their offense, and being surrounded by shooters, a five-out system, and a coaching and Ryan Saunders that has proven willing to throw guys into the fire at a younger age. Uh, I just feel the most confident with the circumstances, his surrounding, and the fact that hey, he's still the number one overall pick and, in mm-hmm. my opinion, the most talented guy in this draft class. Like I, I, I think betting on anyone else would be trying to talk yourself out of Edwards as much as anyone else proving you uh, what their circumstances are that
3: are better. I think you could probably talk yourself into any of the top three picks because there's a chance that all of them are starting. I would think that LaMelo and Edwards will both be starting, and then obviously the Wiseman thing's up in the air. And even if he starts, there's the question of how many minutes he plays. When I do my official predictions, like there's a chance that I try and get too cute slash ugly and maybe go with the Tyrese Halliburton pick. Like he's the guy that I've fallen in love with. Him and Patrick Williams were like the two that kind of I zoned in on leading up to the draft. Uh his opportunities obviously Way more shaky in Sacramento. And like you said, you don't see him having like the the boom factor of a lot of the other guys, even if he ends up being like, you know, fairly impactful as a rookie, which he might be. Yep. You alluded to it when you picked him for your advanced metrics darling selection.
1: Yeah. You know, Halliburton is that like a little bit of a Josh Hart or a, you know, a Kyle Anderson ish. Like nothing wows you when you watch them play. And then you pick up the box score and you see that they were like, Four of seven from the field with four assists, five rebounds, one turnover, a couple steals, a block. like just solid produces. don't notice him a ton out there. Like Halliburton, you know, he'll get minutes early on. He's one of the more ready to go guys. Um, but like you said, it's it's these are awards that are based on statistics and volume and opportunity on the floor to have these things pop. So uh, hard to bet against the top pick in this draft for that.
3: My actual last question, so when do you begin cannonballing into the 2021 draft, or have you already started?
1: Uh, you know, this is a unique time for a, a college basketball coach at the Division three level since we're not having practices or games right now. This is the first time since I was in college that I get to sit down on my couch and watch college basketball games on TV. So in the last week, I think I've watched 12 or 13 full games here. Uh, Got my first pre-draft nuggets coming out in class later tonight, uh, as we're recording this year. So probably be live by the time you know everybody's listening here. And uh, I do have my my big board and my top fifty preseason already set. So we've we've already dove in here, Dan.
3: Well, I look forward to pestering you again in the near future about that. Also, just about other hoops, you know, actual NBA basketball that's going on. So rest assured, I will be continuing to bother you throughout the year. If you guys are not following Spins on Twitter, again, remedy that immediately at Spinella14. He is the Dickinson College assistant men's basketball coach, a contributor to Celtics blog. Um, Visit his YouTube channel. Search Adam Spinella on YouTube. Go subscribe there. He's doing a lot of film breakdowns there. He just mentioned the Doc Rivers one. He did, I lived, I feasted, binged on the the draft breakdowns he did for prospects. He had separate videos for strengths and weaknesses. Those were fantastic and really helped someone like me who goes through a crash course and studying. leading into the draft. So follow him on Twitter. You're going to be getting a ton of good content. And once more, Broken record style, Adam, thank you so much for for coming on. I look forward to talking to you again soon. And
1: thank you so much. And uh, always appreciate the opportunity just to, to chat some hoops, chat NBA draft stuff. And before we know it here, we're going to have
3: basketball on Christmas. Yes. And let's hope that it goes off with and continues to carry on without a hitch. Absolutely. Laz, welcome back to the Hardwood Knox podcast. I think this is the fourth time you've come on. And I say to people, like, once you've been on more than three times, it's a choice. And so, like, you deserve all the blame for
0: coming back. So thank you for coming back. But also, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Uh, is it like I'm on like the Steve Martin, Alec uh, Baldwin, SNL category where, like, I'm one of a select few who have been on here four plus times. That sounds like a, like a fun thing. It's, so
3: one, I think you being on that list might be an indictment of your um, taste in podcasts to be guests on. Um, so I'd say about that what you will. But yeah, you, Caitlin Cooper, and I, there's there's fewer than five. I have the list, um, but there's fewer than five people who have done a minimum of four appearances. Oh, Grant Hughes, I work with him. He's a good friend. Um, and I think there's only one more person that's done four um, or five appearances. So you're on a, a very select list, but I, I don't actually know if that's like – just considering the content here, that might not be a compliment. So
0: Well no, any any list I get to be on with Caitlin, I feel like that's a great company. And so like I'll take that. Oh,
3: Tarabone Biggs as well. So she was the other one that's done four. I'm looking at my list right
0: now. Um yeah. Oh, the from Portland? Yeah. yeah the, see the, yeah, those are those are two great names. Like, yeah, I'm honored. This is great. Sweet. I think,
3: look, it's always better to hear than this podcast sucks. I don't know why I'm doing this. So I, I really appreciate <laughs> it. Um, So last year, uh, I do pester you probably like more than annually. And I think this year it was like, it f- might have been three times in the same year or whatever it was, but you came on and did the entire central division with me because I invariably set out to do single team pods and then quit because it's too much work. I am trundling along with single team pods this season. And so you were here to only talk about the Pistons. Uh, I don't know whether that makes you happy or a little bit sad since it's not the rest of the Central Division, but uh, I have narrowed your focus. And I have not, you will not be here for three hours like
0: you were last time covering the Central Division. <laughs> I feel like if nothing else, it'll be more focused for the listeners. It's like, hey, this is the thing I know better than the rest of the Central Division. And so, like, yeah, we can talk about this. This will still be three hours, though. Right? <laughs> Look, my li- the, the listeners of Hardware Knocks come here.
3: They want a minimum of 300 minutes of Piston content each episode we do on the Piston. So um, let me start, though, with with their offseason. It was – I was one of the people that made jokes about them collecting bigs. But they obviously, like, did not end up with too many after you trade Bradley, you, you um, wave and stretch Dwayne Deadman. Uh, but still, their offseason just felt like – and we'll get more into the Jeremy Grant stuff, That, um, but between adding Mason Plumley that seems like it's fine. But where do you land on things like that seem more questionable where it's would you have let Christian Wood walk at that price point? Uh, did they really just acquire Dwayne Dedman so that they could stretch his salary over five years instead of stretching Tony Snell for three? Um, the price that they paid for Sadiq Bey, whom I really like – um, but when you have so many seconds and then like you did include a good player in Luke Kennard to get him, who, by the way, uh, $64 million, Luke Kennard. I don't know if that changes your view of that uh, that trade at all. Um, even the Bruce Brown deal just looks wild after the, the Musa, uh, like getting rid of him. So I'm just curious as to where you land overall on the type of offseason that Detroit had.
0: So from a like 30,000-foot view – like this was a like this was the the off season that Pistons fans wanted, right? they the team they wanted the team to rebuild. Uh, they wanted the team to be bad. The team is rebuilding, uh, and they wanted the team to and fans like wanted the team to have a lot of young guys. This team has a lot of young guys. They're gonna be bad. They're gonna get a high draft pick. Um it's just the way that we that the team chose to go about it was not at all what people envisioned. Um, and I think some of that is uh, time shock. Like the Pistons did functionally nothing for seven months and then completely restructured the team in a month. And so it's like, Whoa, like what, like it's, a, it's very disorientating. You don't know what's happening. Um, but some of this, the, but the, the, from a large scale, like it's, it's exactly what people wanted. Um, the one critique I think that is fair though, is that the team, and the new leadership and new GM Troy Weaver um, does not place a high priority on extracting maximum value from their transactions. Like you mentioned the the four second round picks in the Luke Kennard deal. Uh you mentioned the very meager return for, for Bruce Brown. What um, was the return? Is mean, what is it down to? It's just a second round pick from It's just it's Toronto's like yeah. twenty twenty-one second spicy which is a yeah it's not great it's not great um but you know the the what we've what we've been able to glean so far is that they place a really high priority on getting their guys in and less of a priority on like what it costs to make that happen uh whether or not that is like a wise team building strategy kind of remains to be seen and it kind of just really Depends on how the young guys in Killian Hayes, in Sadiq Bay, in Isaiah Stewart, it really just hinges on how those guys work out. Um, but you know, in the in the meantime, like yes, they uh, they did a really bad job from like an NBA two K perspective. <laughs> the
3: I think the biggest issue I actually have, and maybe it's because you hyped me up to him uh, like too much on the last pod, was the Bruce Brown deal. Just after what he shot on quarter threes last year, and knowing what he does defensively. Uh, I like that's just there's no value out of that really, and so that is the one that's like now that you know Moose is gone, like that's the one that I'd probably be most critical of. Ironically, I wasn't in love with the Canard thing, but his knees, he just got paid sixty four million dollars. I actually really like Sadiq Bay. I, I kind of get it, even if it felt like an overpay. But it's just it's funny that the one that's rubbing me the wrong way right now is that Bruce Brown trade. Like were they just like oh he's too close to free agency, we don't want to pay him, but it still feels like they gave him away for nothing
0: yeah it it still feels like they they gave him away for for very little but that was I don't know it was it was interesting their uh the remarks that Dwayne Casey had before even the season ended in Detroit about like how they were going to stop playing Bruce Brown at point guard just because they didn't believe that was his long-term position and he but like that was the only position in which he looked uh like at effective at all on offense and so it was just like very much did not make sense for maximizing Bruce as an asset, and then the front office kind of also came in and agreed that they didn't feel like maximizing Bruce as an as an asset. And for what it's worth, I think he's played like uh, he's played like less than 20 minutes in preseason for the for Brooklyn. I thought he would immediately enter the rotation that has proven not to be the case. He's playing behind, like, Landry Shamit, who was also in that, in that Luke Kennard deal. In weird that was way. such a wild
3: trade. Just on so Like, I'm just <laughs> – even from the Clippers' perspective, I like it for them because they have all those assets now. But, like, the, the Clippers really care when they have Kawhi and PG about second-round picks. Uh, I, I just thought it was an interesting gamble to go from Shamit to Kennard, who I think can clearly do more stuff off the dribble – if he's healthy and just the prospect of paying him good for him getting his money. And if you told me he's fully healthy, he's, I'd say he's worth it. He had a really good year before, uh, the knee issues, but like, you know, knee issues aren't really a joke.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And if you, I, there was like a line, you know, buried in the story from Woj about, uh, canards extension that, you know, it's only 56 million guaranteed, right? Like eight of that is dependent on, uh, you know, him hitting certain like milestones, we don't know exactly what those milestones are. I would assume they have something to do something to do with like games played, uh, which is something he struggled with as a member of the Pistons. But like, yeah, I mean, if there's enough concern around his uh, his knees long term to put that kind of stuff in an extension for him at 24, like you you understand a little bit more of why the Pistons didn't necessarily highly prioritize bringing him back. The, I think the move that stood out most, obviously, is the Jeremy
3: Grant contract. And so just so you know where I land on it, I think you could have paid Jeremy Grant 25 to $30 million to a year to be the player he was in Denver specifically, and I would just be okay with that. Whether he could be that for the Pistons because of the spacing around him is a different story, but it, the idea of bringing him in with the goal of expanding his offensive role terrifies me. Is it overstated that that's what they're going to try and do? Like if you want him to do simple stuff like dribble the ball up and dump off a, you know, an assist to like a trailing fee or something like I get it. But if you want him to run pick and roll or like really attack off the dribble or take pull up jumpers, I would argue that Jeremy Grant at twenty eight million dollars from last year is a better value than they're going to get from Jeremy Grant this season at, at about 20. It's just sort of where I land on it where it's like, I don't care about the money. The money's fine. And that deal, if he was the same player, the exact same player he was in Denver and then his last year in OKC, that's a movable deal. It's the thing that I'm, I'm struggling to wrap my head around is like this, uh, the, the sentiment that he can be a lot more on offense when I really just don't see it good on him for betting on himself. I will say that because the money was apparently equal in Denver, I just don't think that that was a smart decision by him.
0: Yeah, it's and from what we've seen so far in the preseason, we are recording this uh, after the Pistons have played all of their preseason games, but before the start of the regular season. So all we've got to go on so far is the preseason, and it's it's been a mixed bag. Um, Grant has been able to uh, he's been he's been able to do the things he was good at in Denver. Um, he has not been able to do a lot of the stuff that he was brought in that he said he wanted to do. And so that's proved tricky. It's made him obviously a less uh, efficient player. Mm-hmm. And even when he fails, you see you see why a team would like give him the space to like try it just because like when he drives, he's so long and so athletic, and you figure you get a little bit more skill work in there and you could you could really have something, right? You could really have a thirty million dollar player in there. but uh, the finishing still is not, is not quite there. Uh, he was, he was like posting up Alfred Payton and like, it wasn't working. And like, that's like, that's an eyebrow raising moment. when it's like, you, you can't post up a dude who's six inches shorter than you. That's a little weird. Um, what else? <laughs> uh, there's, I think there's, there'll be opportunities for him to play off of Blake Griffin in, uh, in ways that'll make both of those guys better. Um, in in dho sets you know running pick and roll uh, as the screener for blake and like maybe coming off uh, dhos from blake um but yeah like it's it's not looking great so far however you know that's just on offense on defense he's been basically everything you could ask for right he's been uh, active uh you know rim a rim protector the pistons played the knicks and the wizards so it's not like they had the opportunity to throw him on a Kawhi Leonard or mm-hmm. a LeBron James uh but you you definitely like see why he would give those kind of guys trouble you would also see why his um his numbers like the advanced stats on his defense aren't amazing he he sells out he sells out a lot to make plays um and often like takes himself out of position and requires a team to uh be structured behind him in order to take advantage of the fact that, you know, he's selling out to contest out shots and, and make life difficult around the rim. You, you need to surround him with better rebounders. You need to surround him with guys who can rebound from maybe the guard position mm-hmm. and just like looking at Denver's roster. it's understandable that they, they couldn't really do that. Um, but yeah, like I, so far I'm inclined to, to keep giving Jeremy Grant like the room to, uh, to be a better player. And if he proves unable to, like then, I'm fine with paying him twenty million dollars a year to be a role player on a bad team. Uh, that's maybe not like the most amazing allocation of resources, but uh, it's, you know, it's what he offers on defense at the absolute least is worth like the bulk of that contract, you know, regardless of how good your team is. And so uh, for now, I'm I'm fine with it. Uh, and the other the other big thing for Jeremy. Is that he's not Christian Wood, like that is that is his great sin in a lot of the minds of Pistons fans, and he never was gonna be Christian Wood. Christian Wood is a uh, insanely efficient offensive player and an insanely productive offensive player. Um, Jeremy Grant can be efficient, probably won't be able to produce at that level, but uh, Christian Wood is not as good defensively as Jeremy Grant is, and the culture that the new front office is trying to build uh, is about defense. And the team has classically only been good when they emphasize defense. And so yeah, you understand the the preference of Jeremy Grant over Christian Wood. But for a lot of fans, they just see a dude who has the potential to put up 25 and 10 on any given night. And like, you should have paid that dude. And it's hard to, ar- it's hard to argue with, honestly, especially where the number ended up at. Like it wasn't astronomical. Yeah, it was, it was fine. And there, it was even more frustrating at first because, uh, I don't know if you, I don't know if you remember, but the initial reporting uh, out of Houston was that Christian Wood was going to sign for like three for 27 and people were like, Whoa, 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 Whoa. (laughs) Yeah. That was uh, the, uh, yeah. yeah. Even the team I think was like, Whoa, like if that's it, like, yeah, we, we can do three for 27. And then, uh, they went back to the negotiating table and he got more, but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's tricky. And there's also the the thought – the line of thought that like would Christian Wood be this good on a team that doesn't have James Harden and John Wall on it? Like I, I, I don't think so. Uh,
3: I was surprised at – and this is only tangentially related to the Pistons. I was surprised at how much Nuggets fans seem to not care that they lost Jeremy Grant. I thought they were – I still think they're placing too much emphasis on the on-off splits and the rebounding uh, because – What he did for you in the playoffs, like he gave you a body to throw at Kawhi Leonard, uh, to throw at uh, a Luka Doncic, even a Paul George, like he saw time on all those LeBron on all those guys. And you're never going to stop all those guys, but you need like feasible bodies to put on them. And the Nuggets don't have that anymore. Maybe there's another, you know, I've seen people in our YouTube comments are arguing that Michael Porter Jr. can be that guy. I don't know that I see it. Maybe he can be. I mean, if I, I get if he can, like that's great. But Jeremy Grant has value just because of what he does uh, from an optionality perspective on defense. It's yeah, I don't care about the rebounding. Um, as you said, you know if he's going to hustle and contest shots, like that's also I don't care about the rebounding. And then, like you know he was playing next to Jokic um, a good amount of the time. I know him coming in the second unit. Like yeah, that's tough. Just surround him with someone who could rebound. That doesn't seem like a big deal to me because he's also like covering guys that are going to live away from the basket a lot of times too. I think he was super important to them, and that's why I ultimately don't have. If you told me, just knowing what he's going to do defensively for the Pistons, if you told me that he's still going to maintain his three-point efficiency that he showed the past two years in Detroit, then I'm just fine with the deal. Like, I just totally understand the logic of it from the Pistons' perspective. And if you can work in some more just on-ball stuff just to, to plummet and see the depth of it, I, I totally get it. It was just, maybe I was reading too much into the, the narrative surrounding his departure. I was just like, the idea of Jeremy Grant, like being on the ball. I don't want to see Jeremy Grant post-ups. I'm sorry. I don't want to see them. So... Uh, that's where I land on it. But if you told me, and I think he's shooting like 35 plus percent from three in the preseason, you'd like to see that number come up a little bit. But I do think Detroit spacing probably puts more pressure on him, even when he's off the ball. Like he's maybe he's going to have to take deeper threes and stand further beyond the arc just to have enough room to, to get off his shot. But I think there's a pathway to him being fair value here in Detroit. It just doesn't in in my image. It doesn't look anything like the player. It seems like they signed him to be or at least test him out to be.
0: Yeah, I'm and i do not think Jeremy Grant thinks that he's going to start taking like off the dribble like isolation threes I think it was more like he just wants the opportunity to come down and like be a priority uh, In the offense from time to time And it's really difficult to imagine how that was going to be the case if he stayed in Denver Um, I can't you know, I can't fault him for that. You know, he wants what he wants Um, And I and I understand it to to an extent but it is kind of uh, it is kind of funny, not funny, but it's kind of funny that you know his skill set um, of a three and D role player, of a like very efficient three point shooter, of a, a de- of a defensive uh, uh, option uh, offering the defensive optionality that he does. A lot of that will be wasted on a team that's going to win. You know, twenty games like the Pistons are going to win.
3: <laughs> right, uh, but still, if he's like. The player that he was, like that becomes, and I'm not, I don't like when people see these contracts signed. I'm like, well, that could be moved, but like, there's a contender that will want what Jeremy Grant does and will be willing to pay. Uh, I don't know what type of asset form, but maybe it's a deal where they're sending back another contract they don't want. Detroit takes it and there's like a, you know, a a more bloated asset return for that matter. Like this is not, again, it's not, I'm just, it was functionally is what I was trying to wrap my head around. And you definitely, I think you helped me at least understand it a little bit better here. Um, I'm actually more puzzled by the Nuggets fans, fan base seemingly not caring that Jeremy Grant left than the fact that the Pistons actually signed him is
0: just sort of where I've landed on this. Yeah, I think, and and like when if I was trying to justify it, I'd be like, I, you know, our championship window runs through what we can do offensively anyway. It doesn't matter that you know what Jeremy Grant can do for us on offense can be easily replaced, and what he does for us on defense uh, can't. But we're gonna outscore. We're gonna have to outscore teams to win anyway. So let's just lean harder into that.
3: I wanted to ask you um, about Killian Hayes and. Just what your impressions are him so far? What do you like about his game? What, what concerns you the most? Do you think they'll give him a long rope this season, like to really go through the motions? Um, I, as someone who just didn't really traffic or never, I should say, I'm not gonna make. I never really traffic in draft coverage. I phrase it as I get shin deep in draft coverage right before the draft. <laughs> um, he has like I kind of like the dancing he could do with the ball and. So and he seems like really fluid from that perspective. I'm just curious. I haven't dug like super granular into his game, and so I'm just curious of what the impressions are um from you, what his fit is, and what type of role and volume you think that he's gonna shoulder this season.
0: I really like Killian. Um I think it is a great sign that the team let him uh start right away. He is this currently the starting point guard for the Detroit Pistons. That uh isn't always the case for 19-year-old point guards, and I think um, a lot of what makes the coaching staff comfortable with that decision is that he looks to be a, at least average NBA defender already, which is great to see because normally the way 19 year old point guards kill you is by turning the ball over and being really bad on defense, right? Killian, it looks like he, at least, uh, he'll me he might turn the ball over, but he will not kill you on defense being, you know, being six, five, um, knowing that you're six, five, uh, Playing in Europe and having a solid grasp of like team defense um, for the lat because he's been playing in a team defensive structure for the last you know three years as a as a professional I think that's really beneficial and uh, and yeah the but the but the thing the main thing offensively is his passing uh, he's only averaging I think like two assists a game in the preseason but that's not doing a great job of capturing. All the plays he's making for his teammates that don't get finished, uh, you know the the aforementioned Jeremy Grant. He's thrown Jeremy Grant like three or four like pinpoint corner passes for for threes that haven't gone in. Um, and he does a lot of his damage uh, out of the pick and roll. That was that was you know who he was known as uh, coming into the draft. Uh, that's proven true. Uh, it's tough because of the spacing. Um, they've had him operate a lot with uh, Blake Griffin, like just you know doing two main actions with Blake. And Blake is not exactly like the the lob threat that you would classically pair uh, a young point guard with. They've been using uh, you know, they've been using it to like force switches to get Blake on a, a mismatch on a point guard, or like have him take bigs off the dribble. And so like it's not like it's not one five pick and roll flat and just like mm-hmm. letting him go to work in in the way that uh, I think you'd. You'd uh, expect for like a starting point guard, but he's really impressed me with his ability to see the floor. He's really impressed me with uh, his ability to play at his own pace. You know, a lot of rookie guards they come in, they look like the game is moving at like three miles uh, a second, like in front of them and they can't see what's going on. He can already kind of bend the defense. He can already diagnose coverages. He already like knows personnel um, in a way that's really impressive and uh he's what he's finding now is like how can i take advantage of this right uh mm-hmm. we saw him be more aggressive into certain matchups against the wizards we saw him uh try and fit passes into windows against uh bigs in the preseason that uh he probably could have got away with in europe but with the uh with the better athleticism at the nba level it's a, it's a little bit tougher to make those passes and so that's something he's, he's going to have to learn and get used to um and the other thing for him is the shot. The shooting uh, is coming along, but is definitely a work in progress. Uh, the motion is not consistent. Um, the the catch and shoot numbers, were like, were bad in Europe, and they in they continue to be bad uh, in the preseason. He looks, he continues to look far more comfortable shooting off the dribble than he does off the catch, uh, which is like fine in a point guard, but not in a point guard that plays next to Blake Griffin, and Blake Griffin's going to have the ball a lot um and so that's something to be concerned about but he's also like already done the thing where he's like stayed like 20 minutes after a game just like see some shots go through the net and so like you you know this kid is going to work on the things that uh he knows are issues for him and so you definitely expect that he will make strides in those areas and so i'm really really high on killian hayes i had him as the best overall player like on my like little personal like Pistons draft board, I was extremely happy that he was there at seven to be selected. And I think he has a very, very bright future in Detroit.
3: I think it's almost encouraging when players shoot better on like off the dribble jumpers than catch and shoot jumpers. Uh, I guess long-term if it continues that way, then yeah, it's a problem. But like the, in theory, off the dribble jumpers are the ones that are going to be harder to hit. And so if you just give them enough, like space and time that they should be able to eventually knock down catch and shoots where I wouldn't be too worried about him having to play off uh Blake Griffin or if they want to go you know him even with the Ellen Wright like that's just something that they could be, I wouldn't be like too concerned about that then long term I would think that it's more encouraging that he's comfortable and can be like capable of knocking shots down off the dribble
0: yeah and he's he's not afraid either right like we, we've seen him take some uh some very like 19 year old shots in this preseason and yeah, that's I mean, gonna continue because he, he thinks he can make them, and that's what's important.
3: Yeah, when he's like backed up, like from the the preseason footage that I saw of him, like when he's like has the ball and he's like backed up like beyond the arc, like he just he'll attack anyone. It doesn't need to be like a someone who's like a mismatch, like he'll just go. Um it was fun to watch. The other rookie that I uh is really interesting for this team is Sadiq Bey. Um I'm just wondering your impressions of him personally, again, as somebody who didn't watch him a lot in college, um seeing him uh, I saw a lot of him like play against the Knicks. I didn't realize that he had, you know, some of the shots were questionable. I just didn't realize he had so much of a floor game.
0: Yeah, he that was uh, that was the best preseason performance he put up, uh, and it was it was eye opening for uh, for Pistons fans as well. I didn't, I certainly didn't expect uh, that level of uh, of ball handling out of Sadiq. Um, but he got he got really high praise from Blake Griffin um, in training camp. Blake said he worked out with Sadiq. Um, in L.A. prior to training camp and that Sadiq had uh, one of the most complete games he'd ever seen in a rookie And so like when when a guy like Blake Griffin says something like that like that raises your eyebrows, right? Like mm-hmm. Blake Blake said nice things about Sekou, but like he never said anything <laughs> like that about Sekou, right? And so uh, I was definitely Keeping an eye on Sadiq. He looks any like for now. He looks definitely like the role of a, of a three new player uh, looks capable as a defensive player immediately, which is good to see. Uh, there were definitely times in which I think he was more used to being able to—he's uh, more used to being stronger than everybody else in college, yeah. and like that's not going to be the case in the NBA. And so he got uh, that happened that uh, came up as an issue a couple of times, but for the most part, he was in the right positions, doing the right things. Um, he had, as you said, he had some eye-opening moments as a ball handler. He had a nice, uh, he had like a nice mid-range jumper. He took uh, R.J. Uh, R.J. Barrett, excuse me, R.J. Barrett, Barrett off the dribble for an and one, um, and he was a capable like catch and shoot three-point shooter from NBA range. Uh, you always worry about, you know, how guys are going to adjust from the college line to the pro mm-hmm. line, and that did not look like an issue for him. It looked like he was, you know, entirely comfortable taking like wing uh, catch and shoot threes, which are, you know, the the toughest threes to to take and make. And so, like, yeah, I am i don't know if there's a place for him in the rotation, if we're being perfectly honest. Really? Well, well, just because there's so much youth, it's hard to get, like, you know, 11 guys' looks on a night-to-night basis. But I, I do think Sadiq uh, will factor into this team's plans in the long term.
3: I mean, I guess that's good. I'm just like, who is worth, like, giving him minutes over, though, at the wing? I mean, you have Grant, you just paid him, and there's – Say who, obviously but like do you need to like who else who's the one that's gonna like you do you need to play Josh Jackson over Sadiq Bay
0: Josh Jackson played much much better in preseason than anyone uh, expected and it looks like for now like he's gonna hold down the the backup uh, small forward minutes
3: interesting i was gonna so i'll ask you about josh jackson now what has he been doing well then i know so i didn't watch any of his g league games last year i want to make that very much clear i do not watch the g league but from like the the scant time that he he spent with the the grizzlies he looks just like a lot more under control and decisive and even on defense just i don't want to say he's good but like he's just more it seems like he's more disciplined like it's just especially away from the ball um has any of that bled through to his very early time with the nuggets yeah with the yeah. Nug- wow Dis- the uh, pistons
0: woof <laughs> yeah disciplined and like restrained i think are are great words to use for like the the josh jackson that the pistons have gotten so far um what like as because he's a detroit native and he should have gone to michigan state i'm still mad that he didn't go to michigan state and, and join miles bridges and win a national championship but uh that's not the case um you're clearly handling it well. You don't think yeah. about it at all. But I say all that to say I've had my eye on Josh Jackson for a long time. And what was so frustrating in Phoenix was that he was asked to do a lot of things. He was asked to do a lot of things You know, because he was a high draft pick. He was asked to do a lot of things because he was on a bad team. And so uh, he developed a lot of on-court bad habits. The There's like a little – he loves like this little like 12-foot push shot. That like it only looks good if it goes in, and he misses far, far too many of them, right mm-hmm. he He got to take a lot of like step back 20 footers, which is like you know, sure, but like, first of that's all, that's not...
3: sacrilegious. step back 20 footers there's I know people oversimplify the long two conversation, but those are unforgivable.
0: Yeah. Sorry, go ahead <laughs> so, no th- those are really bad shots, right uh he He was really only capable of driving and finishing like with his right hand um. And so all those things are were were questionable, and I think he did a great job addressing those in his year in Memphis, from the hustle to the Grizzlies, uh, playing more within himself, not having the the pressure of being like you know number four overall pick franchise savior Josh Jackson. I think is really is really yeah. good for him. Now he's just like twenty four year old Detroit native room exception Josh Jackson, <laughs> and so no, and and so like. He's played within himself, right? He's uh, been—it he was really efficient as a three-point shooter. I think he shot like fifty percent from three in the preseason. Obviously, that's not going to hold, but he wasn't taking like a wide variety of wild shots. Uh-huh. Um, he was deferring a lot to Derrick Rose on on the offensive end. Um, he was still able to uh, make—he's able to make. Lee. And turn those into points on the offensive end which is like an element the pistons have always kind of struggled with playing with pace and playing in transition and so like that was really good to see um the the like his his size and length is just so so noticeable for a team that like didn't have a lot of that last year it's like even a guy he's like he's not the strongest dude in the world but like he's six eight with long arms and the Pistons were playing much more aggressively on defense in the preseason, and so if you're driving middle and he comes in and like he digs on you, like you're gonna feel it. And uh, he was causing a lot of havoc that way, and it was it was structured havoc, and it was havoc that was effective. And so yeah, like Josh Jackson flat was was better than Sadiq Bay uh, in the preseason, and like that's why he's got the backup uh, small forward job kind of on lockdown. And uh, you know I couldn't be I couldn't be happier, honestly. Like he, he showed a lot in the preseason. We can only hope it continues.
3: Uh, all I'm saying is oh, one, one. I cannot, I missed that draft. Poof. I had a lot of misses in that draft, but the biggest where I was so high on Josh Jackson and, uh, believe it or not, Justin Patton was the other one that was like, <laughs> you talk about a swing and a miss from me, uh, I hope they, pl- I'm, I guess I'm just too intrigued with Sadiq Bay, but I need to see more of Josh Jackson. So I guess that's a good problem to have though. And they're both like still young wings and like, those are the type of like projects you just want in some on the roster. So uh, I'd like to see them play together. I know that that might not be something that they can get toward, but if they can just really lean into like an, not an all wing lineup, but like wing heavy lineup, like you could go Grant, Bay and Jackson and just see what that does defensively for you and so, maybe you get enough ball handling from jackson at this point where it doesn't matter who the other like if if you need a well you need a point guard as well but i would like to see that like trio play together a little bit
0: yeah we saw we saw them kind of dip into those like very wing heavy lineups right we saw uh like bay jackson seku jumbuya minutes in the preseason the the thing was like the the lack of consistent shooting and the lack of like threatening shooting was always kind of an issue and so the the main bench lineup was Derek Rose, Svee uh Josh Jackson slash Sadiq Bey, Sekou Dumbuya, and, and, uh, and Jaleel Okafor. And so, like, you, it's tricky to take Svi off the floor, and Sekou also played well in the preseason, so it became tricky to take him off the floor and slide Jackson up to the floor. And so, like, yeah, it's just... A lot of, and then, you know, Jeremy Grant's starting at small forward and he's really a power forward, and Blake Griffin can only play power forward. He's not, you he can't really use Blake as a small ball five. And so, like, yeah, after, after like years of me complaining about the Pistons not having size on, on the wing, they, they kind of have too many guys who can play on the wing now to see, <laughs> to at least to see everybody at once, right? And so I think, you know, Sadiq Bey is probably the odd man out for now.
3: So I guess th- that kind of answers the question is does their offseason impact the way they're going to use just Sekou at all? Because now they have all these different wings like positionally. Is that going to change? Or I know as we talked about when you were on the pod a few months ago, like he's someone who seems like he's really comfortable or eager to have like a more expansive offensive role. And does this sort of mess with that? Because you're bringing in Killian Hayes. Um, if you're going to give Jeremy Grant just like a bigger workload and there's a healthy Blake Griffin, uh, how does that impact the way that they're going to use Sekou?
0: So – seku has been getting consistent minutes, which I think is like an important first start. That was not guaranteed. Like, as I talked about, like the depth on the wing, it wasn't like a, a given that Seku would get minutes. They weren't, uh, you know, when the front office kind of, they, ha- they had the OTAs during the, uh, during the bubble and they were, you know, looking at the team, uh, they were saying nice things about Sekou, but it wasn't like they weren't saying nice things about anybody else. Uh-huh. and we knew that Seku had kind of had a, a work ethic issue coming into the season and that had been a, a knock on him in the draft as well. And so it was it was looking it it was kind of dicey for Seku. They weren't talking about Seku a whole whole lot. But he's played really well in the preseason. He's also kind of played uh within himself. He's done a beautiful job of uh not forcing the issue. Um he's done a beautiful job of like not necessarily like feeling like he has to take guys off the dribble with the ball in his hands to be an effective uh, player for this Pistons team. He's done a great job of uh, back-cutting. He back-cut the Knicks to death. Like, Obi Toppin is still somewhere looking for Sekou to do on a back-cut.
3: Okay, first of all, everyone's going to back-cut Obi Toppin to death. To death, so I just want to want to throw that out there, but please
2: continue. <laughs>
0: no, no, no. I mean, it's totally fair. Like, I I had to make that adjustment in my evaluation. It's like, okay, you know, he's being guarded by Julius Randall and Obi Toppin. Like, those are not the most attentive slash mobile defenders in the world. So it's like, does how much should I'd say that this is a good thing that Seku is just like living off these backcuts, and it's it's nice. But like, can you live off of backcuts forever? But no, he's also doing a better job of getting out in transition um and finishing he he got to the free throw line a staggering amount for like a 20 year old he was averaging like 10 free throws per 100 possessions in the preseason was like that that's a lot <laughs> yeah it's like that wasn't normal and i think he shot like 50 he shot like 57 from the line so it's not like he was like it's not like a, so he's what yannick he aspires
3: to be at the free throw. Right. sorry that was that's was too extreme please continue. Oh.
0: no it, but you know that was that was still a positive development um and he was, he was a he was uh, I want to say effective defensively, but he was also like just aware of what was happening on the court defensively in a way that like he for sure was not last year. Just right. like the the uh, the progression there is just blatantly obvious, and uh, what you would hope to see in a guy who, as young as Seku is uh, from year one to year two, and, like now you see him actually learning that like, because he's like six, nine with long arms, like he can impact passing lanes. Uh, he can, you know, he can affect shots around the rim. He blocked Mitchell Robinson on a duck a dunk attempt that we were all kind of like, Oh, like we, we didn't know he could do that. Um, he was a, he was a really uh, aggressive defensive rebounder. Um, something I think that is going to be really important for that bench lineup uh, simply because like, you know, I don't, Expect julio okafor to grab a lot of rebounds. And so it's gonna be important that somebody else do that work um, But yeah, it was and he was doing all that and like staying engaged in the game uh, like Even if he wasn't getting the ball even if he wasn't getting the ball even if he wasn't getting back cuts against the Wizards He was still engaged and attentive defensively And like that's what you really want to see because that's what did Dwayne Casey really wants to see and that's what's gonna keep him in the rotation and so Seku had a really good preseason uh, I hope it continues. I, I really, really do, and I think he will continue to factor uh, into these teams' plans in the long term. Like, will he? Do if we? Will he get to a point where he's like starting over Jeremy Grant this season? Probably not. And if he does, like something has happened. Like something happened. But uh, yeah, Jeremy he... Grant's playing for a different team. No, I was <laughs> actually a... I was thinking it's probably Blake Griffin is playing for a different team. Well, then well, he would I... be starting alongside Grant in that scenario, though, right? Would yeah, mean, I guess? yeah. Yeah. Yeah yeah but uh yeah and you know for what it's worth i think the other thing we like i didn't talk about this but like it is kind of nice to have jeremy grant on the team if for no other reason like this isn't worth 20 million but to say to seiku like hey like we just paid that guy 20 million like you can also make 20 million if you like just do all the stuff jeremy grant does is like and having that guy around in practice like you know getting getting to play against that guy on one-on-one like I I think that's useful. That's that's there's something there in terms of player development. Like that is that is not why, that's not the only reason why you bring Jeremy Grant in, but it's like definitely a nice ancillary benefit. What is the how does
3: the backcourt rotation end up shaking out? And it's like I guess they're not super deep there, but there's some sort of I don't know if it's overlap or just awkward fit issues when you're looking at Delon Wright, Killian Hayes, and and Derek Rose. So how do they kind of juggle that trio until D Rose is inevitably
0: traded? so so far so a i don't know if derrick rose gets traded i'm not i'm not nearly as confident as i was in that the last time i was on this podcast we can talk about that but uh but b for now it seems like what we'll go with is killian hayes and daylon wright start together uh in the backcourt and then you bring in derrick rose and spima Luke off the bench um that works because killian hayes for all of my faith in him is 19 And so putting another guy who can kind of initiate offense and handle the ball next to him for, you know, a spate of possessions is not, it's not a bad idea. Uh Um, You you would ideally like to have more shooting around Killian Hayes, but it's like, it's understandable why Dwayne Casey is so, is comfortable enough. Like putting Daylon Wright uh, next to Killian. The other thing is like Wright would be what Daylon Wright does is not nearly as useful Next to Derrick Rose because Derrick Rose does not need ancillary ball handlers around him. Derrick Rose needs dudes he can pass to. Yeah, because <laughs> Derrick Rose is going to be Derrick Rose, and so uh, it makes it makes. I can see I can see the rationale for having the backcourt kind of run in that direction. With that said, like Svi Mikayluk is so good that it's really uh, it's unfortunate that he's not starting. And it's uh, at some point is going to come into play in uh, contract negotiations because he is uh, going to be extension eligible. He's going to be a restricted free agent pretty soon. And as we just saw with like all the restricted free agency contracts that just happened, like dudes who can do what Svi does, which is shoot, uh, you know, forty percent or greater from three on high volume, those guys get paid yep. and, and not be tire fires defensively, which Svi is not. Um, like those guys get paid and, uh, you know, keeping Svi in a uh, in a minimal role off the bench is not going to prevent other teams from noticing that he's making 40 percent of his threes and shooting like seven a game.
3: Yeah, I mean, he's got to be at least to how the roster is built now. He's just so important, too, because you need like you need guaranteed floor spacing on the yes. on the court and they don't have it outside of him. I guess like does Wayne Ellington even count anymore? I would argue, no. So it's just no. like who else is it?
0: aside from Svi, uh, i guess yeah, like it's, maybe Sadiq Bay like i was like what yeah it's like it's v it's like the the catch and shoot threes you uh feed Jeremy Grant um it's Blake Griffin hopefully uh returning to form as a pull up three point shooter he shot like 37% from three i want to say in his all nba year and so like if he, he would take off the that, dribble ones too yeah if he, so if he does that on decent volume like that's good um but then, like, yeah, it's like Sadiq Bay, and it's like, is is Josh Jackson going to continue to be a thirty eight percent from three shooter, and it's is is Seku Dumbuya going to hit some threes, and it's like now you're like you're you're looking up and down, and you're like, oh, like this. I just need a lot get of out hits. Really quickly. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah,
3: yeah, a lot of ifs uh, So you mentioned you're not nearly as confident that Derrick Rose leaves uh, or is traded uh, from this roster. Do you envision? Either one of but between he and Blake Griffin, uh, it's a stupid question because I think Blake is would still be more likely to finish the season in Detroit. He needs to be really good, I think, for them to be able to trade him without giving up like something, or at least having to take back something. Maybe they don't want. Um, what is the rationale though behind you maybe not thinking that they'll trade Derrick Rose now?
0: So Rose has proven, uh, willing and uh, and able to be like a point guard mentor to killian hayes and i think that the team really values that um you know from a pure like asset valuation perspective he makes a lot more sense uh on a contending team you know in a in a bench role you know scoring minutes off the bench um but i think he's all reports are that he's very comfortable in detroit very comfortable kind of outside of the the pressures of uh playoff success and leading a super team in new york yeah i get it yeah oh my god dan (laughs) sorry sorry no uh but it's you know you can see how he you know would be less uh you know in a he wouldn't be in as good a place if uh he was getting like all the coverage that like alex caruso was getting last year for the lakers right you you kind of understand um (laughs) And you know he still has the relationship with Arn Tellem, his former agent, who is uh, heavily involved with the with the Detroit Pistons on the business side. If I remember his like actual org chart title correctly, um, but I say all that to say that he seems pretty comfortable in Detroit. Um, it seems like the the team has like no issues uh, like bringing him back if that's something he was interested in. Um, and he seems to like it here. So there's, there's less of a uh, – there's less of like a pressing need to trade Derrick Rose to like restock the, the cupboard of uh, draft picks because you've got all these other kids who are your draft picks for the foreseeable future. And so like, yeah, I think, I think if uh, – I think it's looking kind of likely that both guys, both Blake and Derrick, uh, finish the year mm-hmm. in Detroit. But if you, if you made me bet right now, I think it's Blake who gets to Really? Ready. That's interesting. He's just making
3: so much money. I know nothing's immovable, so I'm not even trying to imply that. But just with the injury history, like, he needs to be full stop Blake from 2018, 2019, I would think, for a team to – you're trading for Blake Griffin. Unless you're just giving up a terrible deal, you know, maybe maybe Charlotte decides to regret the Gordon Hayward contract or something. I'm being mostly facetious there, but – like to view that you're like one Blake Griffin away from making a really big leap. I think you need that version of Blake Griffin from 2018, 2019. And I don't know whether we're underselling or overselling the potential for him to get back there. I mean, yeah, the the knee stuff is concerning, but he also just like had a bunch of time off and does that somehow help him?
0: Yeah, he for what it's worth in the preseason, he looked fine, not like uh not like amazing. Uh, he looked. He looked like what you expect after uh, what's functionally a year off from playing basketball. Um, he, in the final Washington game, he finally played without like a compression sleeve or knee brace, which is something I had been looking forward to. Uh, he had like a he had a sleeve on, I think, for the first couple of preseason games, um, and he was still kind of able to. He's able to get to his spots. Um, he was still, he, he wasn't like making the pull-up shots that he, uh, was in his all NBA year, but he was comfortable shooting them. And, you know, that's what matters in the small sample size and preseason. Right. Um, he looked comfortable operating out of the post. I think he led, he was either first or second on the team in assists during the preseason. And so he's still comfortable, um, acting as a scorer and facilitator out of the post, which is what I think you'd, you'd, you'd bring in a Blake Griffin to do, um, And he looked – how can I put this? He looked very disinterested in playing defense, which (laughs) I'm totally fine with because we don't need him playing defense. Like that is what Jeremy Grant is for. Let Jeremy Grant do that. So I guess that it kind of answers my next question. I was going to ask just
3: the way the roster was kind of set up. Would he play more five? Just because I don't think Julio Okafor is eminently playable. And then how much are you going to play Stewart? But I think you just answered that question for me.
0: Yeah, Dwayne Casey has always uh, kind of hated using Blake as a five. And Blake has always hated being used as a five. I think if if, if anything, you'd be likely, if you saw like a downsized lineup, you'd see like Jeremy Grant nominally play five right and then uh and then you'd go from there but yeah no blake blake is not going to play any backup five minutes which is uh i think that's fine from like a defensive perspective if blake is your your like main guy in pick and roll coverage like that that's a bad time and so it's probably for the best
3: that makes sense, Um, although the offensive mismatches it creates with him at the five. I'm just a sucker for like, hey, let's create mismatches all over the place. So I just throw out these small ball lineups, small, put that in quotes, because Blake isn't small, that have no business being on the court defensively. Um, What's the skinny on Isaiah Stewart? Does he play a role with this team? Um, Do you like anything specifically about him, dislike anything about him? My only one hot take is I don't, from what very, 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 very little Um, film i watched of him i don't see someone who's ever going to be able to like exist um, defensively outside of the restricted area i just don't i don't see it am i wrong
0: uh it's hard to say he didn't play much in preseason um he plays hard He, he always plays hard which is uh you know which will endear you very quickly to the detroit pistons faithful he got uh he got ejected from a preseason game so it was like, it's like okay, big Marcus like, Morris energy right there. Yeah, you you see what this dude is about. Um, <laughs> but yeah, he he looks he looks it's interesting. You they 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 talked up the fact that they're trying to develop him as a shooter, and then he like never took any threes. And so it's like okay, that's you know that's just team talk. Um, he looked fine not like I mean, he was playing against other you know third string fourth string uh players for the most part and so like his uh inability to like cover ground efficiently as a pick and roll uh drop guy was like not as taken advantage of by like Raul Neto and Ish Smith as it perhaps would be by a better opposition and so uh, uh like that that's something to consider um I don't think he plays a role in this team right away. It looks like, you know, the, the center hierarchy is pretty clear. It's Mason Plumley and then it's Julio Okafor. That and then there's it's no way that Stewart. lasts. Does that last Julio Okafor just as the primary backup? It it I don't know, man. Julio, it's it was tough. Julio never impressed me during the preseason. He was uh he was not very good defensively. Um, and then Shocking. you'd like, look at the. I know, right. But then you'd <laughs> look at the box score and you'd have like eight points on four shots and eight <laughs> rebounds. And you'd be like, I don't know how that happened, but it clearly happened. So like maybe it wasn't all bad. And I and, guess if you forget just, that he's and, in the
3: game, that counts as a positive. Is that the way to look at it?
0: Is uh is either forgetting he's in the game or being frustrated that like Josh Jackson is throwing him passes that like he you know he can't catch, <laughs> and so like yeah the the center rotation for the Pistons is is looking kind of rough but uh, but to get back to Isaiah Stewart, um, a guy who plays with the motor that he plays with I'll always have like a soft spot for um, do I think that translates into rotation minutes? I do not uh but like it's not like it's not like Mason Plumley and Jaleel Okafor are like in this team's long-term plans so like sure especially Okafor who i think uh is only here on a on a minimum deal and so it's it's not like Isaiah Stewart couldn't supplant Jaleel Okafor i just don't expect it but i like it i like the developmental swing right like if you if you do teach him to to drop um that's a very uh it's a very like a bitched Zubak kind of player as a guy who just like drops and like protects the rim and like dunks on the other end and just like messes people's day up. Like, yeah, I'll yeah. take that guy.
3: Well, I just, why not get that guy playing time then over Jaleel freaking Okafor? I don't, I'm, I'm honestly struggling here. All and right. if you didn't know, I didn't watch that again. I didn't watch so much of their preseason. If like you didn't notice it in the preseason, like what is there to lose by being like, Okay, we're going to play Isaiah Stewart actual minutes.
0: Yeah, I I honestly don't know. I couldn't tell you. And then it's not like it's not like Okafor was the backup center uh most fans including myself had in mind either. A lot of fans, you know, you know, take a swing at Nerlens Noel, right? Like take a swing at Harry Giles who looked ridiculous in the couple of preseason games of Portland I watched. Um that was such a I
3: couldn't believe like even a bo- I'm sure they wanted someone a little bit more proven, but like Boston could have got him for so much cheaper than Tristan Thompson. I'm just there are a lot of teams where it's just like, oh, why not? Why didn't you give Harry
0: Giles a shot? Yeah, I'm. I i did not get it right. Like I wanted to try it, but uh, that's but that's not what's ended up happening. And so like, yeah. But the other thing is like, right? Okafor is there on a the minimum. Uh, if it doesn't work and he sucks, it's not that painful to get rid of him. How many minutes do you envision Dwayne Deadman's dead
3: minutes playing? Dead money playing?
0: You know, like. Deadman in the trade to to uh to get him in order to stretch his contract like over 5 years instead of 3. Like that's that's a hilarious bit of like CBA minutia. Um but if we're like really talking about like out of the six centers the Pistons got, like who should they have kept? They should have kept Tony Bradley. Tony Bradley was legitimately good in the playoffs, in the bubble. Just keep I, that guy. I don't
3: I still don't understand the zaire smith for tony bradley trade from either perspective after detroit ends up getting rid of smith i don't i honestly i don't get
0: it (laughs) it made no sense it was it smacked of like okay we're just we're taking whoever they want to get the second round pick to use on our two-way guy that's fine and then it's like you've already like talked to julio before and established a rapport and been like okay we'll bring you in but like Tony Bradley's just better than Jaleel Okafor. Like, you didn't have to do that. Yeah, uh,
3: yeah. Um, <laughs> um, So, all right, I know this is going to be matchup-based, and I would guess they'd be among the teams that might fiddle around with it, but who's what's going to be their most common or, in your estimation, their best closing lineup this year?
0: Okay, so when you say closing lineup, in we're a assuming game. it's – yeah, we're. Assuming I should it's have a said crunch game, time. Right? I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Just making sure because like, you appreciate be the a lot implication
3: of ga- that they're going to be in some close games. I'm assuming. Yeah, there's,
0: <laughs> there's going to be a lot of games where like they're down by 14 with like five minutes to go, and we just like put in some kids, and they make a run, and they lose by eight instead of 15, and you feel good, but they still lost by eight. Um, <laughs> <laughs> if the if you made me pick a crunch time lineup, I think it would be. Hmm. I think it would be Derek Rose, Suvi Luke Jeremy Grant, Blake Griffin, and Mason Plumlee. I don't think they... Like, as much as I like Killian Hayes and as much as they like Killian Hayes, I don't think they'd let him uh, play crunch time minutes in close... in, like, one of the 15 close games they're going to play all year over Derek Rose. Uh, depending on how many wins they end up with, they might need Ja to
3: close tight games for them just to make sure that they don't pick up too many of those Ws.
0: I'm so mad at you right now, Dan.
3: I'm just I'm literally like <laughs> I'm <laughs> I think this team has the potential to be fun bad and I don't want to see them screw it up by like playing the wrong guys if that makes any sense.
0: No, yeah, and they it seems like the team was constructed with the intent of being fun bad, right? Like they're going to they're going to cause a lot of havoc on defense. Um, Blake Griffin is going to be out there Derek Rose is going to be out there you recognize those names if uh, you were buying tickets which you can't Um, (laughs) and and, uh, you have a bunch of kids you can point to and it's like hey look look at how the kids are developing they're running up and down the floor they're playing defense like isn't this great and then you look up and you're you're down by 13 right like and it doesn't it kind of doesn't matter i made this joke with uh kyle maggio on my podcast kyle maggio fellow uh blue wire podcaster on the uh the nicks wall it's like i need to invest in like a piece of tape that just like covers the score on my tv because like that's that's how often i'm going to be looking at the score and how often it's going to matter for this pistons team this year
3: uh hey that's a, that's a nice little trick and they don't I, those scoreboards are mostly stationary anyway so like you can't block out the huge ones that show up but uh maybe you should give that a, sh- a shot. This is the question I've loved asking people um although some of the responses have been people are clearly not as enthusiastic about the question as I am. Uh is there a let's get weird lineup you're hoping that um they try out at some point point? and I'd like to just point out that the final two questions of or three questions of every outline i've sent everyone are the same and you got the pelicans version which is why it said the svg um trying out at any point this season i do specifically write the the first like 10 to 12 questions but i copy the the last three and so you got you got the pelicans questions is but what is stan van gundy is there a let, let's get weird lineup for the pistons that stan van gundy is going to throw out
0: i wondered if there was like a subliminal shot at at me Personally, but uh, I'm glad to know it's just user error. No, and weird lineup, weird lineup's easy. Uh, Killian Hayes, uh, Sadiq Bey, Josh Jackson, Seku Dumbuya, Jeremy Grant. You just took like, my exact one. That has it, not happened yet. That is the one. Killian Hayes, and just like five, dude, four other dudes who are 6'8, and just like, let's run up and down the court and like, let's see what happens. Like, I want to see it, I'm here for it. I will say that
3: maybe if they want Jeremy Grant to develop into the point guard that he needs to become, you can replace Killian Hayes with Svee and go with spacing that way. So maybe we'll just we'll have Jeremy Grant at the point, uh, at the point, and then have those those four players with him.
0: Oh man, that's that's even that's even weirder, and I don't hate it. That's a lot <laughs> of like that's a lot of like Josh Jackson bringing the ball at the court and like immediately kicking it to the wing to uh, to Shvi and then like you start some like secondary action stuff. But like yeah, that's also weird. Let's try some stuff. It's not gonna matter. They this this team could be fun with trying stuff. I I
3: really hope that that they do. Uh, if, if that lineup, one of the versions that we listed, comes on the floor, I'm going to need like some sort of bat signal on Twitter from you that, that it actually plays so I can immediately drop what I'm doing to go see what happens. I, I will make that happen. Um, all right, so what's a realistic win total? Um, for, and look, there was another user error here. There's Western Conference in there. I'm going to make sure that I have the right over under there too. I'm clearly, I'm clearly a little sleep-deprived or just lazy or some combination of the two. But what's a realistic win total for this team and standing finish in the East? And you could factor whatever you want into that. I've been telling people if you were expecting like um a midseason shakeup their over under was set at uh twenty seven or is the one? oh so oh no twenty three point five which was okay. the equivalent of a twenty seven uh in i can't think in terms of seventy two games I can't do it um yeah it's hard so it's, it's
0: just like so uh so different than what we're, we're we've been used to.
3: Yeah, and like if it was just a shorter season, like fifty, I could probably do it, or even sixty. But like seventy-two is too close to eighty-two. So twenty-three point five, which is the equivalent of twenty-seven wins in a regular season, where would you lean on on this, you know, front across the board?
0: So with twenty-three and a half, I would take the over. But if it was like twenty-six and a half, like that's a that's a way harder number. Um, I think. At least initially, they might surprise some teams that uh, had less recovery time in their off season than the Detroit Pistons had. That's a great I point. I think you'll, I think you'll see that for all of the teams who uh, did not play basketball for twelve months, essentially. Um, but and and as we talked about, like I don't think Derrick Rose gets traded, and I think that helps you out from like an aggregate like win total perspective. Um, but like i've said this team is not going to be good um they're going to be bad i would not expect them to compete there's like a there's like a slight train of thought that they could compete for a play-in spot if like if you get the 2018 version of blake and like if everything breaks right um i'm not counting on that and i really doubt the team is either um but yeah if they were able to win if they were able to win like 26 27 games i think that would be good that would also that would also not be uh that also be beneficial from a lottery perspective um as we've seen from the last two seasons uh being the absolute like worst team and having the worst odds is no it's like more unganful. painful because you're probably going to drop so it's like well shit why were we the worst yeah. team in the league or one of the three worst teams in the league yeah like i bring this up every time i get to talk about this uh, in 2018, the John Morant-Zion uh, draft, that was 2018, right? Or was it 2019? 2019. It was 2019. What is time 20, anymore? That's all I'm yeah, going to exactly. say. So. 2019 draft, Phoenix won 19 games and picked sixth. That is impossibly rough. Like I cannot <laughs> imagine winning like less than 20 games, and my reward is I got to trade down to take cam johnson right right that 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 sucks and that but that is the but not doing that you know holding on to mike conley and marcus all and you know winning 33 games and getting rewarded with the number two pick is the outcome the nba is like quite literally trying to engineer they want every team to win like more than 30 games and then just kind of like let the chips fall as they may they do not want teams winning like fewer than 20 games getting the number one pick and then like doing what uh, what was happening earlier this decade with Philadelphia. So yeah like I, and, and that and that uh, has been a successful effort. they successfully tweaked the odds um, I don't and like uh, what Char- I think Charlotte and Chicago were the teams that moved up this year and like they those teams seem pretty happy with the selections they were able to get. Um, the 2021 class is, by all draft accounts, pretty stacked. With um, wings too, right? I haven't dug too far into it, but it's like not just stacked with guards and bigs; it's stacked with wings. Yeah, like there's like there's like six or seven guys who are just like six, seven ball handlers, and it's like that's nice. Could have used some of those this year, <laughs> but <laughs>
3: you have Jeremy uh,
0: Grant. Stop pining.
3: Come on. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but yeah, I mean, so I think this team is going to be. In position to uh, have good lottery odds, good shot at uh, Cade Cunningham, good shot at Jonathan Kuminga, good shot at Jalen Green, good shot at, you know, insert name of your preferred draft person here.
3: So I took the under with them when we did our over-under podcast because I apparently mistakenly assumed that Derrick Rose was gone and that if Blake Griffin wasn't, they would probably like watch his minutes a little bit because if he's going to finish the season there, you don't want to end up like compromising his trade value down the line or even just compromising him. What if they decide that they want to be a lot better next year because they have a high pick in this draft or something? So uh, if they're not going, if you told me Derrick Rose and Blake Griffin both finished the season on the roster, I might have been more tempted to go with the uh the over for them uh it was sort of the same thing for me with like charlotte i don't think they're gonna have a talent fire sale but they like their over under was close enough where i was like oh they could kind of hit the over um but all things being equal i would i would pick detroit to hit their over before i would pick charlotte charlotte has talent to give in a fire sale no, I, I wasn't assuming one because they didn't have it, was my point. Okay, okay, okay. Like, I, like, I, I
0: it's like, did I miss something? I, I, well, somebody? the
3: one swing piece there was like, will they consider trading Devontae Graham when he's in a contract year? Yeah. Uh, I don't know that they will. I don't think they should. Um, he's really good, and I would be interested to see him playing with Lamelo. And I guess if you got rid of Cody Zeller just because your center play is so, like, like you have Bismack Biombo there now. So, uh, but, yeah, I'd be more inclined to, if, if both of these teams stay the same, I'd be way more inclined to say the Pistons are going to hit their over than
0: than the Hornets. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, I live down in North Carolina, so I get Hornets games, and so I've actually like watched uh, a fair amount of the Hornets over the years. And Devontae Graham is really good. Uh, he is definitely going to get paid in restricted free agency, and that's going to hurt for Charlotte. Yeah, well, I mean.
3: Yeah, the stuff that I
0: everyone like looked at his efficiency last year as it
3: like fell off a cliff, but just the defensive attention he was commanding, um, he like basically took on the Kemba role. And the fact that he can draw that attention means something. And if you give him an outlet, and now he has two with Lamelo and uh, Gordon Hayward, uh, it stands to make him that much better. And so I wouldn't be surprised if there's a team that comes in there just over the top that wants decent point guard play because he can really do some stuff off the dribble and he doesn't need to play on the ball either if you have a guard or another ball handler that's big enough where you're not asking you know devontae graham to to guard up a position at the other end or something
0: yeah i think of him in the same way i think of like john collins and marvin bagley and like christian wood as like these very uh, as like these role players who are extremely good at the things that they do and the things that they do are also like extremely well captured in the box score so like Marvin Bagley and John Collins and Christian Wood, those dudes get points and rebounds, right? Like any mm-hmm. anything else is like the the, the defensive impact. You got to dig for the advanced numbers, like the passing numbers. That's not what you're asking for from a big man. So like because those dudes get points and rebounds, like they, they are highly sought after. Devontae Graham makes threes and gets assists, right? And so like from a guard, like those are two extremely valuable – things that are very easily captured in a box score mm-hmm. and so like his value i think is going to be uh, exceedingly high from from uh, from a contract perspective from like a fan interest perspective and from uh yeah and from like a from a like a dollar amount perspective i think there are going to be a lot of teams interested in a guy who can do what Devonte graham does because every team needs a guy who makes threes and gets assists yeah, I mean, yeah,
3: yeah preaching the choir over there. Every team wants that player. Is there to bring it back to the piston? Anything that I didn't ask you about that you wanted to touch on? Did we not um, pay homage to Servetus enough? Like, do we need to go into a deep dive on that or anything at so, all?
0: So I was a little surprised you didn't bring up Mason Plumley. Uh, that was something that people also seemed really mad about for some reason. You know, I I am not the uh I'm not I wasn't the biggest fan of paying Mason Plumlee right away uh, especially since at the time that they paid him like they still had Dwayne Dedman and Tony Bradley like on the roster. That was the and thing so, for me. Like in the context of what their team looked like in the moment, I I was like are they having some
3: sort of like Plumlee or Zeller bingo that they're like trying to hit? Like they need to have one of one of those uh players on the roster. I I didn't understand it, but I think it's a lot more like justifiable now because he is their sole steadying presence at the at the five spot.
0: Yeah, and he's not vastly overpaid like if if you consider him a uh if you consider him a backup center right a good backup center that's like a six million dollar a year player and so for him to start and play a bigger role, I think it's worth the extra $2 million. We saw other starting centers uh, that got that signed in free agency around the league get roughly that kind of money, right? Like Aaron Baines got $7 million a year. Serge Ibaka got like $9 million a year. Tristan Thompson got like $9 million a year. Uh, and I don't know if Thompson's going to start, but he's going to play a big role uh, for that Boston team. And so like, it, it's, it was, it was fine. It was fine. And, Uh, What's come out afterwards since I've talked to uh, Denver people, including uh, TJ McBride, who also, you know, is a fellow Blue Wire bro uh, for the Denver Nuggets is uh, like Mason Plumley is uh, in like I hate I hate to say this because like it's one of those like stereotypes that like white guys like traffic in. But like he's he's a coach on the floor. Right. He gave (laughs) a gave a really detailed uh, explanation of what his responsibilities are for like facilitating Killian Hayes' development at Media Week, right? Mm -hmm. Um, He has a myriad of examples of like what Dame did, what CJ did, what like Jamal Murray did that he can like pull from and and, and impart on the Killian. And I think there's like, I absolutely think there's something to that. Like, does that make him like worth $8 million a year? Like not, not really. But you also like, understand why the Pistons chose to make that move they, you understand why they chose to go after a guy like Mason Plumlee instead of uh instead of like you know Aaron Baines or uh Serge Ibaka Yeah, I mean, people get bent out of shape when centers get paid
3: at like any turn, and so like in the case of Boston, like no, I don't think Tristan Thompson's overpaid. I just thought for what they needed, that money should have gone somewhere else. Then you get into the and it's the same thing with Detroit. It's like okay, well, if not spending the money there, then on who? And so you look at in Boston's case, I'm just using this example, the wing in the ball handler market at that point, like it wasn't particularly deep. Yeah, you could have gotten you know Shabazz Napier just for a lot cheaper. I mean, he's still floating around out there, so maybe you could have gotten him for nothing. Uh, But I don't know you know, I I think Mason Plumlee's money is fine. It just looked, and maybe it still looks weird just because you ended up stretching and waving deadman. And so it's like, you you factor in that opportunity cost. Um, And then just the fact that you're not, they don't have a ton of shooters. And so I don't know that the responsibility should fall on the center to like help with your floor spacing. It probably shouldn't. Uh, So it's, I think once you separate it from like some of that stuff, and certainly from what the roster looked like when the news first broke, it's totally justifiable. And I don't know, like, if this had anything to do with it or even if it is helpful just because of how bad these second units were in Denver. But like Plumley has just pre existing experience, if not chemistry, with Jeremy Grant. And so like maybe that just helps out. Um, because now both of these guys are starters.
0: Yeah, we, we saw a little bit of their connection too in uh in preseason. Like Jeremy Grant. Uh we know Mason Plumley's a pretty good passer. We saw Jeremy Grant like make some baseline cuts that I wasn't expecting because he's used to like Plumley being able to see him. Uh, on those cuts uh we saw we saw um we saw Plumley be able to hit grant for like an open three-point shot uh, out of uh out of like a uh a, a rim attack and so like yeah there's some familiar some familiarity there and i think it helps uh the other thing is like after paying like andre grumman like 25 million dollars a year in excess of 25 million dollars a year like i can't get mad about paying a center eight million dollars a year i just can't i don't have it in me yeah not is is
3: the is the third year even fully guaranteed i can't even remember um i like lost track of the i spent so much trying to, trying to figure out what money josh jackson got the night they signed him because there was stuff floating around that they got him at the minimum and i like i just couldn't confirm it and i was like there's no way i was like he there's no way he went to detroit for the minimum and he obviously didn't but i had such a hard time keeping track of the the, like the, the details of every single deal that they sign. And yeah, look, the final year is non-guaranteed or it's partially guaranteed. No, it's non-guaranteed. So like two years and $16.1 million for Plumlee is is totally fine. It looks just a lot different when you're paying Dwayne Dedman his full salary and he's on the roster and you had Tony Bradley as well in that moment. And then you also just drafted Isaiah
0: Stewart. Yeah, and like the other thing was like if free agency started at what, like six on 6 Eastern on Friday – so they signed Mason Plumley at six thirty and Jaleel Okafor at like six forty five. Oh yeah, that was the other so, one that made it look. So it's better. like it's like what is happening? Yeah, <laughs> this is not the start to free agency I wanted or expected or thought was healthy.
3: <laughs> um, Laz, this was great as always. If you guys are not following him on Twitter, you really need to fix that uh, immediately. He is at Last Chance. That's at L A Z C H A N. CE. He is, as in his bio, I like participant NBA Twitter, Dean Pistons Twitter. He is actually an editor at Detroit Bad Boys. He hosts the Detroit Bad Boys podcast. And then, of course, he hosts the Pistons versus Everybody pod for Blue Wire Podcast, which also is the parent company of this podcast so this was this was a family affair i really appreciate you coming on as always laz and giving me so much of your time i think as you know by now too that i'm going to bother you again in the future um so thank you in advance for all your future appearances once you clear three i just assume that now you think it's a good decision to continue coming back
0: i i look forward to it again anytime i get to be in company with caitlin cooper like that's a good day and so like yeah i look forward to the next time the next time you need me, something will have happened with the Pistons, and so that will probably be a good thing. Probably.
3: Um. I mean, I don't know. It's the Pistons, so it, it could go either way. Like, did they go all in on a trade for Victor Oladipo or something? Or Zach Levine? Who knows? Why would
0: you— why would you say that? Why would you hurt my feelings like that?
3: I mean, if anything, I helped you because I trolled. Um, and I, I, by the way, I did this really quickly to start the podcast. Uh, Kanata Edwards is also on the list. He's the fifth and final person to have made between four plus appearances on this. I trolled him. He really didn't want Obi Toppin on the Hornets. And what ended up happening was um, the Hornets jumped up in the lottery. They got LaMelo Ball. And then the Knicks ended up with Obi Toppin. So if anything, I just ensured that um, the Pistons are going to have a very quiet, sensible, regular season. You're welcome in advance.
0: Thank you. That's the, that's the closing I hope for. <laughs> Nobody builds 5G like Verizon builds 5G. Because we're the engineers who built the most reliable network in America. And the more you do with 5G, the more building it right matters. The more your network matters. The more Verizon engineers going the extra mile matters. It's us pushing us, it's Verizon. Versus Verizon. 5G built right from America's most reliable network. Most reliable based on rankings from Rootmetric's second half 2020 U.S. report of three mobile networks. Results may vary. Award is not an endorsement.